the benefit of the Enterprise and the Federation. I say now, and for the record, that Captain Kirk ordered the Enterprise across the neutral zone on his own initiative and his craving for glory. He is not sane. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I feel like it's my duty to inform everyone that my partner Scott Mance's behavior lately has been very strange. He's become aggressive, angry. It's I, it's very difficult, and I don't know quite what's going to happen with this episode. Well, well, I do have a motive here. I have a motive because this is a very special episode. It is the fourth episode of Star Trek produced for the Notorious third season. And this is our namesake episode. This is the Enterprise Incident. And we are very, very excited. And and I'll tell you, this has been a long time coming. It should have happened a whole lot sooner to welcome our very special guest. He is a very good friend of mine. He is a filmmaker, a writer, a musician, and he is the son of Leonard Nimoy. He is my good friend, Adam Nimoy. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents, Adam. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, when you when you did your rewatch of the Enterprise Incident, you know, I'm guessing it's been a while since you've seen these. It may, may have been decades for in some of these cases. But what was your what was your take on your rewatch of the Enterprise Incident? Well, I think it's a pretty strong episode. I mean, you know, it has its flaws, but uh, I think there's some very good writing in it. Uh, I think there's excellent performances in it. It raises a lot of issues about uh, themes that run throughout Star Trek. Uh, I I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I think there's a lot to talk about. Oh, well, how about you, Steve? What was your take on over these years, Enterprise, the Enterprise incident? <laughs> it's funny. I've I've always liked it. And I think I am already, we're four episodes into the third season, and I'm already revising my opinion because we've had four strong episodes with, and this is another one. And, and just, you know, we've talked about before how doing this podcast has changed my perception of the show. And man, with all of the talk we've had about Spock and the development of his character and all the talk we've had about Kirk and the internal struggles he had, in particular with the last episode we just went through, Paradise Syndrome, there's a lot here. Yep. Never would have thought about had we not been going through the show the way we've been doing it. There's just it's a really complicated and deep episode, I find. It is an exceptional episode. This is one that I I've always liked, but just like so many of the episodes that we've covered on this podcast, this is not one that I've seen recently, maybe more than six or seven years since the last time I watched it from start to finish. And definitely doing this podcast, Steve, has has enlightened me so much to the themes, the, the the running themes about the development of these characters that really come to bear in the Enterprise incident. But specifically in covering this show in production order, which has been so crucial to establishing mythology and the development of characters, you're also seeing the evolution and the decline of the series. Now, one thing we could definitely say by this point is that the the greatest episodes of all time, whether it's Bounce of Terror, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, A Mock Time, The Doomsday Machine, Mirror Mirror, Journey to Babel, the peak Star Trek is behind us. But the myth going for all these decades now is that the third season just was, I don't want to say just not as good as the first two, but downright terrible, especially because you started with an episode like Spock's Brain. But... If you start with the episodes produced, 
The first four episodes of season three are truly outstanding. Specter of the Gun, uh, Alan of Troyes was great. Paradise Syndrome is a is a sublime episode. And now we hear here we have the Enterprise Incident, which was written by Dorothy DC Fontana, who was so crucial to the development of the character of Spock, of Vulcan mythology, especially in you know the journey to Babel. But uh, the episode was directed by John Meredith Lucas, the third episode that he directed after you know uh, Alan of Troyes and the Ultimate Computer. Now, when Fana Fontana first submitted her story outline, the screenplay was called Ears. That was submitted on March 29, 1968. Now, of course, the title Ears may be very on the nose because of the transit, the transformation that Kirk goes through, but there was a double meaning to this title, and that was the prospect of listening in, of spying. Now, when Fontana revised her story outline on April 19th, that's when the title was changed to The Enterprise Incident. And for a very important reason that I know that Steve Morris is going to dive right into, uh, she submitted her second draft teleplay in early June of 1968. Arthur Singer did a script polish on June 7th. Then executive producer, or rather showrunner, Fred Freiberger did his script polish, his final draft teleplay on June 13th. The Enterprise incident aired on September 27th, 1968. It was the 57th episode to air, but it was the 60th episode to film, and it was filmed on schedule in six days between June 19th and June 26th, 1968. The cost of this episode was $175,923, which brought it under budget by almost $2,500. The score for this episode, Steve, are you ready for this? Alexander Courage returned to Star Trek after the naked time for his fifth but not yet final score. The score was recorded on August 5th, 1968. Now, Steve, I can't wait to ask you this question. So I'm going to ask right away. Why was this episode so timely with the title, The Enterprise Incident. Scott, I hate to do this to you. I'm letting you down. When you said, as Steve will talk to a minute before, I went, what is he referring to? I don't know. I'm sure I'm going to kick myself the moment that you say it. What is it about the title? Of the oh, episode? my gosh. Okay. Well, there is an incident that happened called the Pueblo Incident. Oh. And this was a very, very big deal in 1968. And Adam, I saw you shaking your head. Do you know about the Pueblo incident? Yeah, apparently it was a, a captured vessel during the Korean War. So uh, oh. th- yeah, this, this happened earlier, or, or it happened at the same time? It happened, it, yeah. This happened in 1968, so it was during oh, the so Vietnam War. So it has to be the Vietnam War, I'm so sorry. Right, right. So what happened was an American patrol boat called the USS Pueblo, which was, quote unquote, a communications monitoring ship, which is another name for a spy vessel, was captured by North Korea during the Vietnam War on January 25th, 1968, two months before Fontana completed her first draft Mm. teleplay. Now, during this incident, the Koreans said that the Pueblo was in their territory and U.S. insisted that it was in international waters. During the confrontation, one crewman was killed 
Several more were injured. 82 survivors were interrogated and in some cases tortured over the next 11 months. This definitely inspired Fontana, who said it was based on the Pueblo incident in the sense that here's the ship caught spying and they have to find a justification for their being there. Kirk's sanity is put on the line and they have to get out safely, preferably with the information they came in for. Now, that's not what happened with the Pueblo, but the Pueblo incident kicked off this line of thinking in my mind. So I just thought that was really interesting that that you know this episode just was so timely with so much of the tumultuous uh, stuff that was going on in 1967 and 1968. That is fascinating. And, you know, I opened up the episode with saying that you had been the one acting strangely who wasn't maybe fulfilling your duties. And I feel actually that's a better description of me because <laughs> I feel like I really blew it on this one. I can tell you some of the other things that were going on in the world at the time that this was filmed, if you'd like to hear some of them. Absolutely. None of these are huge things, but the, I think the big lesson for me and in, in, as we've gone through these years while Star Trek has filmed, is we feel as if things today are so difficult and controversial and painful and political. And we feel often that this is just something that's happening today. And looking over and over again at what was going on in the late 60s, there's so many similarities. For instance, uh, the CIA announced in uh, on June 22nd, that the Soviet Union had spent over $2 billion supporting forces that were anti-American interests. So both forces in North Vietnam and also Arab countries after the Six-Day War. And it's like, here we are today dealing with proxy wars and different countries having conflicts and spending money to defeat their enemies. Uh, it's also a primary season. And Nixon and Humphrey both won huge primary victors, victories. This is in the wake of the RFK assassination. Um on June 23rd, Joseph Kraft, who was a columnist, coined the term Middle America. That is where that term comes from. Uh, on Again, things that we are talking about today, on June 24th, in wake of the assassinations, Johnson asked Congress for a bill requiring the registration of every gun in the United States. That is the beginning of national gun registration on June 24th, 1968. Um, this is not related to anything, but I found it fascinating, which is on June 22nd, 26th, the Vatican officially confirmed that the remains they found in the tomb underneath St. Peter's Basilica in Rome were, in fact, those of St. Peter himself. Wow. Now, I have no idea what the science they brought to bear to prove that is, but that is what they said. And one other thing that actually relates to things that are going on today, today we're going on all sorts of issues about these huge corporations and their national power and these big internet companies. And on June 26, the FCC issued the Carter phone decision. And that was up to that point, every single phone used in the United States was something rented to you by AT&T. And this is the decision that said, no, you could use your own phone. Anyone can use whatever phone. It's the first step in breaking up AT&T's network power. Are we dealing with trying to break up the power of huge corporations that involved in communications today? Yes, we absolutely are. The more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Well, I, I have a question for Adam before we dive into the scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the Enterprise incident. After the second season, Adam, you know, when there was this incredible – campaign to save Star Trek for a third season, which is 
unprecedented, especially that it happened, you know, before social media, before the internet and everything like that. And yet, you know, the fans saved the day and here comes Star Trek back for a third season. But, you know, there were a lot of changes that happened before the third season started production. You know, Gene Kuhn left, Roddenberry kind of took a big step back, uh, Star Trek got a new time slot. And, and, you know, you were, you and your sister were like in the thick of all of this because the character of Spock was so immensely popular. But do you have any memories or did you have conversations with your father later about the transition from season two to season three, what he was excited about and what he was maybe not excited about? Well, a number of thoughts come to mind. Number one is that during this time when the third season started airing, uh, we were about to move. Our lifestyle changed dramatically. We moved from West LA, a very small house. It was really a two bedroom, one bathroom house, very tiny, uh, into Westwood. Uh, So my father felt a sense of financial security knowing he was going into the third season and could afford a a bigger mortgage. Uh, And that house I think my mother stayed in it for 42 years. I mean, wow. uh, you know, yeah, that was 12 years old at the time and it was completely transformative for us. You know, I, I think my, you know, my dad felt this uh, sense of security that he had never really had before. Um, he was uh, buying new car. He bought his, uh, he, he bought himself a 68 Buick Riviera. You know, I mean, he was really kind of expanding his financial muscle a little bit and feeling, and he was very conservative financially, my dad. I mean, very fiscally conservative, uh, investing all the time. But uh, we, it, it was transformative for us that, that it was renewed for that third season. Um, and the other things, you know, was, that was happening was that, you know, he told me when I asked him, when I would ever ask him about specific seasons or episodes, he would say it was all a blur to him. And it just happened so quickly. They cranked out so much material in such a short time. It, it, it is Beatles-esque. In that respect, I mean, the Beatles had seven years, you know, and a hundred and some odd songs, you know, so it's uh, it was at the same pace. It was really at a breakneck, frantic pace. So uh, I think that that he was concerned about the quality of the show, certainly. And there were a lot of notes. There was a lot of conflict. Uh, There was concern about Gene Roddenberry stepping back. Uh, The fact is, I, I think he was not happy with Spock's brain, except to say that apparently there were a lot of people watching. And he felt it was because it was called Spock's brain. Uh, by that time, he was really feeling secure that the character was uh, in a in a great way a flag, you know, a pole or a tent pole for that series. People were really, really fascinated with Spock. Um, and uh, even though he he would always, in, in a sense of humility, say it's an ensemble cast, um, you know, everybody is important uh, to the, the contribution that they're making to Star Trek. But I think he felt a sense of pride that they were opening with that episode. And the title of that episode is what I think attract, that he felt attracted a lot of people, although he, he felt the episode was really underserved the series. And, um, and I think that's really the extent of it. I mean, at that point in time, I, I was losing interest in watching because, I mean, Paradise Syndrome is one of my favorite episodes of all time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's heavy, it's deep, and it really it grabs you emotionally. But there were a number of episodes that was like, come on, this is just filler material. It was absolutely uh, placebo, I think, is what a friend of mine called it. You know, it's like, it's just there's nothing there. There's, you know, it's a nothing burger, and it's just a time filler, and it's unfortunate. And it, and some of it was embarrassing, flat out embarrassing for me. It's funny uh, doing these in production order. So going through these first four episodes, I'm like. Wow, this 
this this is great. It's like if they were actually able to air these first four episodes first, you know, instead of like doing them all over the place, and then then I think the reputation that that's the third season has would be very very different. But you know, with the episode we're covering next, Adam. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of fans know that that episode is "And the Children Shall Lead." You know, that's the episode where people go, "Okay, here we go, <laughs> here comes the nosedive." But for now, uh, I mean, you know, the Enterprise incident is is a terrific episode. With, with I have to say, you know, we're going to get into this too. The first of many great female guest stars in the third season, which which were which was actually a really strong point of season three. There were a lot lot of of guest stars. Uh, women in very strong roles. Um, so shall we get into the Enterprise incident? Let's do it. <laughs> uh, so we start off uh, in a teaser, and rather than getting a captain's log, we get a medical log saying kind of the same things I've been joking about before, that Captain Kirk's behavior is wrong. Something is up with Captain Kirk, and we immediately see him get a report from Chekhov and then interrupt the report and say... A theoretical encouragement... Yes, Mr. Chekhov, I can read, and as usual, your theoretical evaluations do not tally with mine. Return to your duty and I'll let you know when your work is satisfactory. And the way he just kind of like shoves him off, you know? Something is definitely up with Shatner or with Captain Kirk in this episode. And it was, you know, I remember when I saw this for the first time, it was very jarring uh, to see Kirk act this way. But, you know... In terms of the way the crew is observing Captain Kirk, so here they have their captain back for the first time in in two months because he was on this planet uh, with amnesia and you know had this whole relationship with one of the locals and you know even had you know was was going to have a kid until she died and and that you know they're probably thinking you know especially Uhura and Sulu and Chekhov like. Like, wow, he's he's not he's not quite there yet. Maybe they're thinking like, uh, you know, he's still processing a lot of what just happened. But that's how I'm sort of like reading their interpretation of Kirk's behavior, even though we know why he's really acting this way. I think I had the same thought, Scott, and I think that makes this episode work better because it makes their reaction to Kirk's crazy behavior more understandable. You know, because normally they just, I mean, he's really acting like a jerk, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, he's just, and he shuts down Spock in the next moment. And it's, it's not just that he's rude to, to Chekhov, who's a junior officer. He's rude to his best friend and first officer right at the beginning. So, Adam, I, you know, when when Star Trek was in its third season, of course, there was a big a big deal that that it was moving to 10 o'clock on Friday nights. You know, you were you were 12 years old at the time. You know, did you did you even bother to watch it on Friday nights at 10 o'clock? Well, no. I mean, there were a couple of times I remember where I was like hanging out with friends at their house and uh, somebody had it on in the background. Uh, we, we just, you know, as a family, we were not sitting around the TV the way we used to do on Thursday nights and and watching each episode. We were all off doing our own thing. And this is this is why Friday night is really a graveyard for most shows. It's so unfortunate that it got that time slot. Uh, because I just think uh, it was harder to stay focused when you got to the weekend. You know, the the other question, Adam, is, you know, even in the third season, did your father come home sometimes and be like, okay, this is a great one. You got to watch this one. Or was he just already thinking about about filming, you know, in the next episode and remembering his lines? Well, Scott, you got to remember, I mean, 68, uh, I'm 12 years old, almost a teenager. And 
and we've got this new big house where everybody's got their own space and <laughs> we're just not communicating them. And he's never around anyway. The guy's never around, you know? Uh, so, I mean, that's when the, the family really started to split apart. So I, no, he would not come home. The thing that did happen during this period, I do remember, you know, distinctly is that he was coming home and, and leaving scripts lying around the house. And that's when I started to think to myself, I should start collecting this stuff. I've got a small <laughs> collection and I got to pick these things up. He's just leaving them everywhere. We've got them everywhere. But uh, we did, you know, there was so little, there's so many other things going on. There was so much publicity. There were uh, a lot of uh, photographers coming, a lot of uh, interviews going on. Uh, he was out of town on the weekends making personal appearances. Uh, the records were happening at that point. You know, he's he's like, he was doing theater. You know, we were off uh, all over the wow. place while he was doing musical theater. There was just too much happening. And we were just not that integrated as a family. We never sat around the table for dinner. Never. It just right. never happened. This is when we were really, really becoming, going our separate ways. Start. This is the, the impact that Star Trek had in our lives. Yeah. It was just yeah. too demanding. I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's a six day shoot. Yep. A six day shoot for you know, for uh, for that kind of material that, to, you know, it's just it's a very fast moving train that he was on. And he was very focused on that. Also, I might add, and he has confessed this himself, uh, getting deeper and deeper into his alcoholism. I mean, he's coming home every night and decompressing with uh, with a martini, oftentimes one that I made him, so, <laughs> you know, and then he'd go off on his own and be studying lines or whatever. So a lot of, you know, disconnect in the family during this period. So we really weren't having a lot of conversation about what was going on with Star Trek. I think we were all kind of, and, and it was year three. So we're all getting kind of jaded Tired by of it. it. The, yeah. other, the other event that I do remember during the third season was that he was nominated for a, an Emmy Award. That's right. During that season. And I think that was the season that they combined the dramatic category with the comedic category. And we thought for sure he was going to win this award. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. the third time he was nominated yep. first two awards he did not win under kind of somewhat fluke circumstances eli wallach won the first year for a special eli wallach wasn't even there at the emmys he didn't know he was even nominated oh, geez. <laughs> my dad did not win the second season he was up against milburn stone for uh, Gunsmoke. that was we knew that was going to be a sympathy vote for him and he in fact won it as doc on Gunsmoke. But the third year, it was it, the winner of that Emmy Award was none other than Warner Klemper for Hogan's Heroes, which Ugh. shocked us. Oh, wow. gosh. Yeah, it was just shocking. Ugh. So I remember that was kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a weird situation that happened. We really thought it would be uh, the climactic ending of, of an incredible three-year run where uh, the popularity of Spock had soared and it had changed our lives so dramatically and that he would be recognized for the incredible work he had done. So mm -hmm. these are the kind of issues that we were, and we were, were dealing with 68 and all the fallout from 68, all the political fallout, because my parents were, you know, peaceniks and, uh, you know, they were supporting Eugene McCarthy in the 68 race, but my mother just broke down, you know, uh, during the RFK incident. And it's just, it was just a very tumultuous year um, sure. for, for everybody, you know, it was a very, very difficult year. I just want to highlight something you said, Adam, which is that people who don't work in the film industry just don't get what kind of hours are required. And like, so normally if you say not that people really work these all the time, but you got an eight hour day and a 40 hour week. Well, at a minimum, a film shoot is a 12 hour day and usually it's more and frequently it's a six day week. 
plus you got transpo back and forth to set, plus you got to learn lines and prep things and do appearances and do publicity and all that stuff isn't in the 12 hour day. So people at the minimum are working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. That doesn't give a lot of time for anything else. And man, when I come home from a real, real long day on the set, that martini sounds good to me too. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. there's a reason that these things happen that way. Um, so anyway, anyway maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe we could say that that's what's wearing on Captain Kirk right now. He's been working a lot of long hours too. Maybe he hasn't gotten enough martinis from Dr. McCoy, but needless to say, his behavior is pretty bizarre. And it gets even more bizarre when he sets a new course and has uh, Sulu come around to 185 Mark III, and there is an immediate, immediate reaction around the bridge. Sir, that'll lead us directly into the Romulan neutral zone. Yes, very perceptive, Mr. Sulu. I know where the course change takes us. Wow. So, but, you know, at this point that, you know, look, this is the captain, they're following orders and, and, you know, he hasn't steered them wrong before. So, so, and of course they do have to follow the orders. So they go along with it with suspicions. And then Scotty comes on the bridge and has a little uh, back and forth with Uhura that Kirk overhears. When did the order come through? Order? From Starfleet. The order to enter the neutral zone. There's been no order I know of, Mr. Scott. Because obviously you can't cross the neutral zone without orders from Starfleet. And Kirk says, If you two have any complaints, you can bring them out into the open. And right before they can complain about anything, we see a Klingon ship. Scott, why is there a Klingon ship? Uh, okay, so 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 here's where the whole air date order versus production order, Adam, gets a little complicated. So... In the beginning of the first season, you had the creation of a Romulan bird of prey that was designed by Matt Jeffries, and that was in Balance of Terror. And at the end of the first season and throughout the second season, the Klingons kept popping up, but we never saw the Klingon warship. The Klingon warship was designed by Matt Jeffries for the third season. Finally, we see the Klingon warship, and it was used for the first time in the episode Alon of Troyes, which was the second episode to film. But... There were so many complex uh, visual effects for then that the air date for a line of Troyes was pushed way back deep into the third season. And because of the timeliness of the Enterprise incident with the Pueblo incident, they rushed to get that out in the beginning of the third season. So we are seeing a Klingon ship, which Scotty is uh, shocked to see. That's a Klingon ship. Intelligence reports Romulans now using Klingon design. Now, there was a much, much bigger subplot, which I think would have been really, really great because in the, the earlier versions, the Romulans and the Klingons really forged an alliance. It wasn't just that they were using the design. And I think that would have really set the set a standard for all the other Star Trek shows that followed with the Romulans and the Klingons. But here they just left it as, ah, they're just using the design. It's weird. It, it, it is weird. I, I think it was weird for me when I was when I was seven. You know, I th think this is always kind of weird. But not only has a Klingon uh, ship showed up that's piloted by Romulans, but then there is a second ship. Correction. There are now three. We are surrounded. Here's the thing about about the original visual effects versus the new visual effects that were done back in 2007. 
So in the new visual effects, the third Romulan ship to appear is actually a Romulan bird of prey. And in the original visual effects, the three Romulan ships are, are all from the Klingon design. So I reached out to our good friend Dave Rossi, who was one of the producers of the visual effects, the new visual effects for the original series. And I said, hey, Dave, why did you and Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda use a Romulan ship as the third Romulan ship that appeared in front of the Enterprise? So he said, and uh, it is actually a really, really great answer, but he said that they wanted Mike and Denise and Dave, they didn't want to get the idea that they just basically jettisoned the whole bird of prey. So they had it mixed where they're, yeah, they're using some of the Klingon designs, but they are also still very much using the Romulan bird of prey design. So that is the response I got. And thank you, Dave Rossi. Well, there you go. And this being surrounded brings us to the end of the teaser with some, I got to say, I love the Alexander Courage music. It does totally bring me back to season one in a lot of ways. It is heavy. It is dramatic. It almost is overly dramatic a few times, I think, but I really do like it. Now, now here's my question, Adam, you know, especially because you directed an episode of The Next Generation, Rascals, which, uh, which I, I love that episode. So Steve and I have talked many times about how the teasers for the original series are always fantastic. Uh, what was your take on the, on the teaser for this particular episode, The Enterprise Incident? Well, one of the things that jumped out at me uh, was the way it was shot, because, um, again, because of the, the economy of time, there are a number of takes where Kirk is walking back and forth on the bridge and they're going from one group of people to another. They're going from the helmsman, you know, back over to uh, Spock Station uh, and back. And there, it's just it, it's what my father used to call the economy of filmmaking. In other words, Today, they would have shot everything wide and everybody gets their own close-up. But right. back then, they had to really cut with the camera and get very creative in a way to cover everybody, to show where everybody was without having to do that, without doing complete takes of everybody on bridge. It just takes too long. There's too many people. So uh, I think it was interestingly staged in a way that we could see that Kirk was driving what was happening in the action and taking us from uh, uh, you know, Helm uh, to back to the captain's chair back over to Spock. These kind of things were, uh, were, it was effective in this respect. I think there's later on the episode, I take some issue with it where they were more could have and should have been done. But I think it's a really, you know, it's a way that I think even modern filmmakers try to get away with covering the material they need to within the time allotted. And again, my dad would call it the economy of filmmaking. It's like we, it's the quickest way to get the material in the can on film Mm -hmm. uh, and make your day and make sure that you've got every, all the dialogue, Everybody speaking the dialogue is on camera and you're covered. So that's what struck me, I think, about the teaser that I thought was so interesting. It's very claustrophobic. There's not a whole lot of wide stuff on the bridge, which is a little unusual. Do, do you think that those lessons affected the way he filmed things himself when he was directing movies later on? Oh, absolutely. We would look at film together. We'd look at a lot of stuff together. We were looking at a, I remember we were looking at a Clint Eastwood uh, uh, Western. I can't remember. It was like Josie Wales or something. And and he, we talked about some of the things that he was doing that that it doesn't didn't require a new angle, a new camera, a new close up on somebody. It was just somebody's line that was so, almost off stage, almost off screen. And it wasn't a critical to the story. And my dad would say, you can get away with these kind of things. I mean, we had a lot of discussion about this. And 
I think it really informed his own filmmaking. Look, you know, when you're on the set and you're watching all these different directors come on and you're seeing what they're doing and how they stage things and how you shoot things, you get a sense of how it's how it can and should be done. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I, I, when I got on set, an actor would say to me, well, uh, you forgot to cover me. And, I, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, because <laughs> they know, they know right. that there's a piece of film missing. So I think all of this was very instrumental for him, for my dad, in terms of his own desire. You know, we're jumping ahead to 12, 14 years later when the mm -hmm. features came out. But I think, you know, but, but I think this really added to his own vocabulary about how you block these things out, where the camera goes how the actors can drive the scene, how the camera can move with the actors. I mean, my dad was all about, what's the scene about? Once you right. figure what the scene is about, then you can figure out where the actors are in relation to each other. And once you figure that out, then you can figure out how the camera can move to cover all that. That's great. That's great. For, for, first of all, I teach directing and you just like laid out one of my main lessons in teaching directing. Ah. The other thing is, I just think it's interesting that the director you're looking at is Eastwood because he is notoriously efficient, calm, gets his day done in time, doesn't waste shots, doesn't waste takes. You know, he's the guy to look at for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't overcover things to death. Nope. He's not shooting yeah. everybody in a medium shot and a tight shot. He's not doing it. You know, he's just, he knows where the action is. He knows where the heart of the scene is. Yep. Uh, and once they get it, they they print and move on. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's tricky It because you want sure. choice in the editing room. You, It's a yep. tricky balance between knowing that you've got it and you've got it uh, covered enough and being short on coverage, there's a couple of times where I thought I had it, where we did a, you know, a two shot of two actors talking and I didn't do any overs, no coverage, because I just thought we had the heart of the scene and I moved on and the producer said, nope, you're going to go back and you're going to get it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, when you're in post and you don't have it, <laughs> that's where you get to get, start getting real creative. Um, speaking of getting creative, <laughs> we are surrounded by Romulans. <laughs> We're back in act one. And uh, the first thing Kirk does is sends off a message to Starfleet. And then he's again criticizing Spock, who had said his sensors were, were clear. And Spock says he has a theory, which is going to be a real key point in the plot of this episode. But before we get to it, we're being contacted by the Romulans. We're getting contacted by a Romulan who was uh, very special to one of our followers and one of our fans, Sub Commander Tao, one of our regular uh, uh, fans who we engage with on on Twitter and on our Facebook page. You know, his name is Sub Commander Tao. But in this case, in the sake of this episode, the character is played by Jack Donner, who on uh, story career was on TV shows like Mission Impossible, Mannix, and even Star Trek Enterprise. And on film, he was in movies like Gideon, Family Tree, and Four Christmases. I am Subcommander Tal of the Romulan fleet. Your ship is surrounded, Captain. You will surrender immediately or we will destroy you. And Kirk, with his normal bluster. Save your threats. If you board this ship, I'll blow it up. You'll gain nothing. But in the midst of this conversation, Subcommander Tal's looking up behind Kirk and says, Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone's uh, taking notice to Spock, obviously, because the Vulcans and the Romulans are, are distant uh, brothers. And, you know, you know, I'm watching the scene. And even though Kirk is not quite himself, or at least he's deliberately acting that way, I'm struck again, as I have been all this time, Adam, by the chemistry between, between Shatner and your father. They were so great together from the very first scene they ever filmed 
back in where no man has gone before, all the way through to the end of of Star Trek Six. I mean, there is the history when you look at two characters like this, like two equals. William Shatner and your father were so friggin' great together. They were just their chemistry was fantastic. Like, like, what is your take when you watch whether it's this episode or one of the films about the dynamic between Shatner and your dad? Well, I, I have to say, Scott, that the thing that always amazes me is the amount of conflict that was going on uh, behind the scenes between them. Yeah, yeah. True. A lot of conflict. A lot of a lot of two guys who are both Aries. Uh, <laughs> they're just four days apart in age or so, yeah. and uh, a lot of headbanging, a lot of ego, a lot of uh, you know very strong guys. I mean, both with my dad, a lot of episodic TV, and Bill with a feature background. You know, and uh, they were they were both really capable. They knew their craft. Uh, they were ready for this job, but there was a lot of head knocking going on and, and with Gene Roddenberry as well. Yep. Uh, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and this whole idea that, you know, it's the captain's show, but Spock was becoming very popular because he was such a, a strange anomaly. I mean, a lot of us were really ready for a character like Spock. We're really, really, you know, myself included. I mean, I, you know, I, I was watching TV religiously up to that point. So, uh, Spock in color, the ears, the hair, the, the demeanor, um, the otherworldliness. We all wanted him and we all glommed onto him. I would oftentimes ask my dad about this very question. I mean, the fact is the chemistry with them on screen is phenomenal. Mm. They really knew how to play off of each other. My dad said in the interview with Bill that, that he, had, he got to change his whole outlook on Spock when Bill came on and uh, the original, remind me, Jeff Hunter went off. Yep, that's at, at right. Point because Jeff Hunter was so internalized and, so, and, and Bill was so flamboyant and flashy. Mm-hmm. And yep. that's when my dad was able to start to pull the character back in which was really a blessing, frankly, because I think my dad could sometimes get too far out, you know, and it really disciplined him to maintain control of what Spock was all about. This idea, this brilliant idea in the writing that Spock is half Vulcan, half human, so there's an internal struggle going on. He loved that. There's an internal life to the character. He loved that. But when I would ask my dad repeatedly, Dad, I I just don't get it. You guys are so good on screen. Yeah, You were so dynamic together. Um, you're so great to watch the the camaraderie, the chemistry, the loyalty, the friendship. It's all there. How do you account for that when you keep telling me these stories about all the stuff that Bill Shatner pulled and that you pulled in retaliation? I don't get it. How, <laughs> how did you guys pull it off? And he said to me, the fact of the matter is we were professionals. Mm-hmm. That was the word he used. We were professionals. We, When the cameras were rolling, we knew exactly what we had to do. And we did it. And that dovetails with a story my dad told me about the fact that they were both in the commissary one day in costume, in, in, you know, Starfleet uniform, having lunch when Lucille Ball walked in and thanked them for being professionals. Wow. That they showed up on time, they did the work, and they went home. They, you know, they knew their lines. There was no drama. They didn't hold up production. Things were, you know, that production overruns were not because of them. Yeah. And she thanked them and then walked away. That is amazing. So it's funny, we were talking just before we started recording about the Beatles and about Get Back and all the description of, of all the tension that might have been there during that recording session. And the thing is, there are going to be tensions on any artistic endeavor. Scott and I have had tensions. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it isn't easy. You're doing something hard, and that's what's going to happen. And I love what you said, Adam, about the point is you're a professional. You show up, you do the job, and they knew how to do the job. 
Yeah, Scott, I mean, the, the case in point really is the White Album along those lines, because if you read Jeff Emmerich's book, he was the engineer, that's when the, the, the gloves came off and it was slugfest time for those guys. There was uh, a lot of, yeah, there uh, was conflict. There's no doubt about it. There was a lot of conflict. It's a masterpiece. It, it, listen, you're talking about Jeff Emmerich's book, which is here, there, and everywhere. Jeff Emmerich was the recording engineer for a lot of, not all, but most of the Beatles albums. And he talks about the the, the recording of Obodi Obada, and and John hated that song to death. And Paul had to keep playing it over and over and over again. And finally, John comes in out of frustration and bangs out the piano. And that winds up being the version of the song that they recorded. Yeah. And Obadi Obada is one of their like most famous songs. So that's professionalism. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, John, John said is that you call that music. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and speaking of having to continue to do your job when you've got tension, we got an hour to decide what to do about the Romulans and we're in the briefing room and we're talking through things when everybody in this room knows that it's Kirk's fault that they're there. And yet they all have to show up and do their job. And the first thing we're talking about is they talk about the design of this Klingon ship that the Romulans are using. I want to point, I know I put it out before, but I think the triangular monitors in the briefing room is the most brilliant piece of filmmaking design because there's even this weird thing where Kirk looks at it and he spins it around so that the audience can see it. Cause what it allows is that we can have characters whose faces are towards camera seeing the same things that we're seeing because yep. the monitor is also towards camera. Absolutely. That is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I believe the Romulans have developed a cloaking device, which renders our tracking sensors useless. If so, the Romulans could attack into Federation territory before we knew they were there before a vessel or a planet could even begin to get the defenses up. I really wonder, we already saw the cloaking device in Balance of Terror. Why are they saying we have a new cloaking device? Why not just say, as we know, the Romulans have this cloaking device? Why is it a new cloaking device? Steve, I'm looking at my notes here and I'm reading the exact same thing in my notes that you just said. Like, like this was already established in Balance of Terror that they have a cloaking device. So this was something that was also in some of the earlier versions of of the enterprise incident was that it, it's a, a far more advanced version of the cloaking device in which the, like you know sensors won't pick up anything at all they caught us right enough well that's a brilliant observation mr scott do you have any other helpful opinions i also like in that scene where spock challenges him isn't that the scene where spock says if not for you we wouldn't be here if we had not crossed the neutral zone on your order you would not now need our opinions to support a decision which should never have had to be made. That, that's part of the tip-off, because it's very uncharacteristic of Spock to call out Kirk on that. In front of everyone else, absolutely. Correct. Well, well, the whole thing is crazy. I mean, the whole, you know, this whole idea. But I love the tension uh, in the air. And McCoy, who's not yet in on the game here, is like, You ordered us. You had no authority. Dismissed, Doctor. Jim. I said dismissed. And he just like is in shock. He nods his head and he walks out of the briefing room. And then they get a signal from the bridge from Uhura that the Romulans are signaling again. I just want to say one thing about the McCoy thing. Yeah. Here, this is my certainty. So they get the orders from Starfleet. Kirk and Spock are having a meeting. Mm -hmm. And the question in the meeting is, do we inform Dr. McCoy? And it is Kirk who says, absolutely not. We need his sincere reaction because he's going to get pissed off and that is what's going to sell this thing. 
And so it's Kirk's decision that they don't tell McCoy. That's what, my opinion. What a great, great point. I never thought about that. Like, would McCoy have been able to, like, you know, bite his lip through all this? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> well, and he's best when he's being McCoy. That's who he is, you know? Well, um, well Adam, I, you know, the you were talking about the relationship between your father and, and William Shatner, but but one of the things that we've really highlighted and and given such high praise to throughout the recording of this podcast has been the relationship between your father and DeForest Kelly. And that there are so many moments specifically, you know, we've referenced the scene many times in bread and circuses in the jail cell. Uh, one of many scenes uh, in which their dynamic, which is very different from the one that your father had with Shatner, but that, you know, DeForest Kelly and your father had an incredibly different one that was equally effective. And, and I'm wondering if, if your father ever talked about, you know, Hey, you know, Shatner, and I kind of butted heads once in a while, but DeForest Kelly was, you know, whatever. Well, he loved D. Kelly. Uh, we all did. I mean, he's a gentle and kind man uh, with a very interesting pedigree himself. I mean, uh, the, the history of his uh, you know, film career was fascinating. I, w- I was always asking about, I mean, D. D. Kelly, and, and I'm blanking on this. You guys are going to have to help me. You're going to have to edit this out. But uh, there, there's a film noir that made D. famous. Uh, as some detective film, I cannot remember what it is. It's uh, we'll find it, you know, you'll if find it. anyway, uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, I mean, look, the guy, you know, I mean, you know, he was in Raintree County, uh, working with Monty Clift. I mean, this guy had been around the block. I mean, D, D was no slouch. Uh, but D's, you know, D's attitude towards his craft, his profession was very different than those guys. Uh, D almost fell into it. I mean, he kind of like circumstances just kept pulling him into uh, his career. Uh, things just kept happening for him. He was in the right place at the right time. I think Bill and dad were significantly more driven, more goal-driven, more, you know, uh, you know, m- m- hungrier for what they were going for, for what they wanted. Uh, so it made a very different type of dynamic with D. He was there. He, he was McCoy in a lot of ways. He was laid back. He was, you know, cool and, and easier going. He was the country doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that when they saw this conflict going on between, uh, you know, McCoy and Spock, the ribbing that went back and forth, they were writing to that because yeah. it worked. They could see that that was really working. I mean, the same thing happened with, with, you know, Spock and Kirk, they were seeing what worked and what they wanted to see more of, uh, you know, and, and they were writing to the characters because these guys were all really top notch professionals. They knew their craft, they knew what they were doing and they were making it happen, you know, on stage. Uh, while they were shooting these scenes. So I, I love D. Kelly. He was much easier to talk to. He was easier to hang out with. He's just a laid back guy. I just, I loved his demeanor. I love the stories, you know. Um, I mean, you know, this whole thing with Monty Clift had this car accident while they were shooting Raintree County and everything changed on that movie. You know, he, that was the beginning of his demise. Yeah. And I was a big, you know, I just loved him. I was a big fan of his. So you know, hearing all this stuff, he was like, he, he was really like, a, felt like a relative to me. Like he was, you know, Uncle D. You know, I really love the guy. My commander wishes to speak with you, Captain Kirk. I have a question. When Subcommander Tal signals over, my commander wishes to speak with you. What is Kirk's response? Put him on. So the question I have, Mr. Morris, is this. Does Kirk already know that the Romulan commander is a she and not a he? This folds into some exactly something I've been worrying about, thinking about too, because the because uh, what is connected to this question is 
is Spock's plane of the of the Romulan commander part of the plan in the fact because if you know that she's a woman then maybe it is if you don't then th none of this was part of the plan so I think it's a great question I don't know the answer to it I I, I really wonder and you know you can play all sorts of tricks in your head with the head cannon and the you know uh to ascertain well how much did they really think this through did Kirk already know that the Romulan commander was a female did did Spock also know that? And did, was was the willing uh, that we're going to see soon, was that all part of the plan? Or was that sort of made up logically as a way to distract her while Kirk is able to snag the cloaking device? A lot of questions I never thought about before, but – you know, this podcast has certainly conditioned me to think this way. <laughs> well, what's interesting is, though, although there are a number of elements in Star Trek that are not PC and, you know, in today's age and sensibilities. Yep. It is interesting that, uh, you know, apparently this is the first time we see a female commander uh, in the series. Yep. yep. Uh, and it is a breakthrough. So this is this is a situation where it, it is groundbreaking that that the glass ceiling has been broken and there is a commander and it's not all, it's not all a man's world. I agree completely. I agree completely. You know, you have the Romulan commander in this episode, you have the Klingon wife, uh, uh, Mara in the day of the dove. And it's not, he's, she's not just Kang's wife. She's also the science officer. Then you have Natira of Yanada. Uh, there's, there's a lot of breakthrough moments. And, you know, we already had some, in in the first couple seasons with like Percy Rodriguez playing Commodore Stone, a black man playing a, a Starfleet officer in a position of power in court martial. And then you have in Metamorphosis, you have uh, uh, Commissioner Nancy Hedford. She's a, an ambassador going off to stop a war. And this is 1967. And now you have, uh, yeah, when she swings around in the chair, you're like, that's a big deal that it's not a man. <laughs> well, and I think for me as a kid growing up in the 70s, this was formative because this was just normal. Well, it never occurred to me that there was any reason why it shouldn't be a woman who is a Romulan commander. True. You know, that's that's the power of some of these images sometimes. The commander wishes to see you and your first officer aboard this vessel. It is felt this matter requires discussion. Why should we walk right into your hand? And then we get this discussion of how can we trust you? And they're going to beam over two officers essentially as hostages by the way, one totally small thing. Am I the only one who thinks Subcommander Tao kind of looks like Ben Stiller? Uh, no, that's accurate. Uh, I never thought about that, but you're right. Uh, maybe that's why Ben Stiller is such a massive Star Trek fan. But <laughs> Maybe it I is. Um, so uh, we go to the uh, transporter room, and Kirk's last orders to Scotty are basically, if the Romulans try to do anything, you're going to blow up the ship. Is that <laughs> wow. clear? Perfectly clear. <laughs> and here's the thing that I'd never thought about until watching it this time was like, A, this is a crazy plan. This is the odds of them succeeding and having 420 plus people on the Enterprise not die are slim. And I kept thinking about, man, what does it feel like for Kirk to give that order to Scotty? Like, unless we can make this crazy thing work, I'm putting you in the position without even knowing why that you have to kill everyone on board. That is absolutely a big, big risk. There are a lot of things that have to happen in order for this plan to work out. And, you know, on a, uh, uh, when you have uh, 100 steps, you're only on number six. 
Yeah. Uh, but we beam over the Enterprise. I like that the Romulans, when they beam onto the Enterprise, immediately draw their weapons. It doesn't seem like Scotty's so bothered. And we're <laughs> down in the commander's quarters, and she has her back to us, and then she turns, and there is the Romulan commander. The Romulan commander, played by Joanne Linville, who was not the first choice to play the Romulan commander. The offer went out to Lee Grant, oh. who was. Very big. I mean, she's a legend, but she was definitely riding high in the late 60s after being in films like In the Heat of the Night. She turned it down, and Joanne Linville took that bull and ran with it. She was on TV's Studio One, One Step Beyond, The Twilight Zone, and Hawaii Five-0. And in the 70s, she made a couple of really good back-to-back films, Gable and Lombard, uh, with uh, James Brolin and A Star is Born with oh. Barbara Streisand. And in the early versions of this screenplay, you know, if that version played out, we wouldn't be having this conversation, gentlemen, because in the early versions, the Romulan commander was indeed male. It was Fred Freiberger's idea to make the Romulan commander a female. And then it was Bob Justman's idea to add the romance with spock and by the way i think she's awesome she's amazing yeah what's your take on joanne linville adam well in this role i mean i'm not that familiar with her other work in this role i think she's outstanding she has poise dignity strength i mean she is really up to the task of going toe-to-toe with spock for sure and kirk Well, and has this underlying sexuality that's going on through the whole thing and this tension, which the more I think about it, the more I'm going like, what was really going on in these scenes? There's a lot of subtext there that we're never going to quite know the whole story on. You are the first officer. Spock. I speak first with the captain. You may wait outside. She asks when she has Kirk alone what the mission is, and Kirk lays out some bull about having some equipment problems and they they just everything was broken and before we knew what was going on we were stuck in romulan space and then we were surrounded oops oops yeah yeah yeah. kirk is kirk is deliberately being a bad liar like he it's like he's deliberately trying to you know sort of like make it easier for the romulan commander whose name we don't know which i thought was unusual but to sort of make her even more suspicious so they can sort of like get moving with the rest of the plan. And her response is, you know, basically dude. (laughs) 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 You know, it's obviously a lie. You're grossly mistaken. If you think that we were there, now listen to me. The Romulan vessel ventured far into Federation territory without good explanation. What would a Starbase commander do? Uh, But Kirk stands by his story. We bring Spock back in. She says the captain has made his statement. And I love all the subtext playing between Shatner and Adam with your dad, like all the looks, all of the stuff there. It's just so it's so telling how how good they both are, because they're not just playing Kirk and Spock. They're playing Kirk and Spock to pretending to be these other things. Yeah, that's true. Right. I must admit some surprise on seeing you, Spock. And Kirk has a reaction. We have music sting there. Starfleet is not in the habit of informing Romulans of its ship's personnel. Quite so. Yet there are certain ships, certain officers that are known to us. Okay, what 
what is this about? They don't know that Spock is on the Enterprise, but they definitely know about Spock. So I, I have a different variation of this question, and that is, why is the Romulan commander attracted to Spock? Can we divide that even further, which yep. is there is a professional interest in Spock, obviously, and there is a personal interest in Spock. So why are both of those things true? What's, do you have any, any thoughts on that, Adam? Who would not fall in love with this guy? I mean, come on. I would like the record to show that Adam is holding up a fantastic little black and white picture of his dad. As Spock. I mean, come on, man. I see the resemblance. Uh, look, I think that there's, there's, a, there's, there are a few reasons for this. For one thing, Spock is just like to, to Pal or to Pring back in a mock time said that Spock has become something of a legend. That legend has extended into and beyond the neutral zone, obviously, especially because of the the uh, the ancestry between the Romulans and the Vulcans being, you know, basically from the same race until they split off. But I also think there's something else going on here. I think the Romulan commander has immense respect for Spock because of his reputation, because of his status, his legendary status. But I also think, like Adam pointed out with that photo, uh, Spock is a great looking guy. And the Romulan commander is the only woman aboard this Romulan ship that we've seen. And, you know, maybe she's a little lonely. Maybe she has been so rigid uh, with with advancing in her career to being one of the few, if not the only female Romulan commanders, that she sees something in Spock that will allow her to hold on to her dignity as a Romulan commander and also uh, 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 allow some intimacy and vulnerability uh, so they can get into something a little more romantic. You know, they're also playing out uh, you know, uh, a mode that has we have seen in history over and over. I mean, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, mm. Anthony and Cleopatra. It's very reminiscent of that. This is an archetype situation. She's in control. She's the queen. None of her subjects are worthy of her attention. And here comes this, you know, this first officer of the Enterprise, the flagship of, of Starfleet, uh, you know, in, onto her vessel. Uh, I, I think, you know, right away you have to, you know, that alone, that setup alone I, I think is it, it just makes it understandable to me that she would you know, want to explore if there's any connection between them. So I love that you just brought up Anthony and Cleopatra. I'd never thought of that, but I, that's a per, and her as Cleopatra, because that's how I've always seen her is that she is powerful. A commander clearly in the Romulan military is much higher than a commander in the Federation commander in the Federation is under the captain. She's over other captains. Mm -hmm. um, she's more like what would maybe a Commodore would be. And, I've always seen her as isolated and lonely. And I think making casting her as Cleopatra, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'll take it a little bit further, which is, I think, you know, there's the intrepid, which is the only Vulcan uh, manned starship in Starfleet that gets destroyed in uh, immunity syndrome. Right. Is that I think, I think that the Romulans can't get along very well with the Vulcans. I don't think they would have a lot of luck with your average Vulcan because of the conflict between them. I think Spock is a bridge. He's a three-way bridge between Vulcans and humans and maybe with Romulans. I think they have found him out. He has become famous. The idea that they don't know him, he's on the Enterprise, I actually just think is bad writing. 
um, is that <laughs> I, I, I think that they they ha- that he's like, oh, this could be an extremely useful person. And what I think personally is that at the beginning, it's just politics. It's just how can we use this guy to our advantage? I think the attraction comes later. That's my feeling. Interesting. Okay. I have heard of Vulcan integrity and personal honor. There's a well-known saying, or is it a myth, that Vulcans are incapable of lying? It is no myth. Now, I feel like we've already proven quite clearly already in the series, Vulcans lie all the time. (laughs) At least Spock does. They exaggerate. They're exaggerating. No, no he lies. <laughs> he's like, he lied in a piece of the action. He lied. He's lied a bunch. He lies when he's dressed up as a Nazi. <laughs> he, he lies. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Then tell me truthfully now. And again, that heavy music sting as Kirk is watching. By your honor as a Vulcan, what was your mission? And his first response is, I, I don't have to talk. He takes the fifth. It is not a lie to keep the truth to oneself. Then there is a truth here that remains unspoken. I love her performance in this yep, part of the yep, scene. Fantastic. You've been told everything. There's nothing else to say. There is Mr. Spock's unspoken truth. It's like building up. It's building yeah. up. Again, Kirk is playing along yep. that that he's uh, getting more nervous and worried that Spock is going to spill the beans. And she goes, I can't torture you. I could never make a Vulcan speak. But there are Romulan methods completely effective against humans and human weaknesses. And then Kirk says, and I have a theory about this, in a very strong voice, he says, Let her rant, there's nothing to say. Here's my theory. My guess is, if Scott, if you and I uh, are going in undercover on some job and we have to play out roles, we probably work out a couple of signals so that I knew when I wanted you to say this thing or I was ready for that thing. I think Kirk saying there is nothing more to say is the signal to Spock to betray him. Uh, I agree completely. I never thought about it, but that makes, yeah, because that's the moment Spock just jumps right in. I cannot allow the captain to be further destroyed. The strain of command has worn heavily upon him. He has not been himself for several weeks. And again, Kirk's reaction, not holding anything back. I love it. He goes, that's a lie. <laughs> and again, it's the contrast between Shatner and Nimoy of the, he's emotional, he's huge, he's flashy. And, and Spock just says, as you can see, Captain Kirk is a highly sensitive and emotional person. You filthy liar. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Here, here's a question I have. At what point do you think watching it the first time in 1968, do you go, oh, this is all a scam? Well, I actually have written in my notes here, Steve Morris, uh, must have been shocking to see this for the first time in 1968. Uh, I don't know if uh, especially younger fans would know immediately that this was this is all uh, part of the plan. I mean, it's a bit because otherwise Kirk has gone nuts. (laughs) (laughs) He's crazy. I say now and for the record that Captain Kirk ordered the Enterprise across the neutral zone on his own initiative and his craving for glory. And Kirk has lost it. Again, I love where they put the camera. Is The camera is too close. Kirk is struggling with the guards. He's way up tight in the frame, just right on the edge of out of focus, looking completely crazed, yelling, I kill you! I kill you! He is not sane. That sting. 
on on Shatner's face, you know, he's just from his from his eyebrows to the to his open mouth. That's on the screen. A little over the top. <laughs> and, Shatner, uh, come on! <laughs> but this is this is the 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 over the topness that I think Shatner has gotten criticized for, especially in the third season. And and you know, granted, he's supposed to be off his rocker and and acting not sane, but. Uh, I think it's a bit much. Do you think it's a bit much, Adam? <laughs> well, I mean, looks, it's it's a very fine line. You know, uh, there, I, I, it can be very campy. I mean, tr- you know, these guys are sometimes there's a wink. There's always a little wink at the yeah. audience of something mm-hmm. going on there. We see it throughout the series. So, you know, it's really tough to know whether they should play it straight and try to convince the audience or whether or not they're going to wink with us and let uh-huh. us know that there's something going on here that's a little unusual and this can't be what it seems to be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, Bill can be over the top. I think he loves to chew up the scenery. <laughs> uh, I think he's very good at it. I think it's, it, he can be very entertaining. I, I, it would have been nicer if they pulled it back a little bit and paid, played it straighter. And it would have been nicer for me, I think, uh, to get more engaged in the, in the show and know that uh, to, to keep the issue and the mystery up, is it for real? Or are they playing her? Because the fact is, you know, they, it undermines her own her own intellect when they start doing that, and and they get so broad with it. I mean, there are other elements to the story where we kind of go, "Come on, here, you know." She, we can see she's being played. She doesn't see that there, there's something going on here that's you know more than meets the eye. So, yeah, I think it's I think it would have been better if they had pulled it back. I, that's just my personal opinion. I, I think it would have been much more interesting if they were. If we were as confused as she was. Good point. I 100% agree. There's there's this weird thing where there's something I know I've mentioned it before is like there's some things where you want all the audience to understand everything all at the same time. And there are other things where people are going to pick it up at different places. The more over the top Shatner is, the more we all pick it up early. And whereas if it had been more subtle, if the, and in particular in the scenes with the crew, where the, right now at the beginning, it's like, well, Kirk's acting like a jury. He's horrible. Whereas if it was more subtle, then it would be like, well, is he acting like a jerk? Could he be on orders? Was this, the, you know, what is happening here? I think it would have it would have brought us in there more. Attention, Enterprise. I am speaking to you from the Romulan flagship. The USS Enterprise, under command of Captain James T. Kirk, is formally charged with espionage. The testimony of First Officer Spock was highly instrumental in confirming this intrusion into Romulan space was not an accident. And we see McCoy and Chapel listening. We see the rest of the crew listening. Therefore, I am ordering Engineer Scott, presently in command of the Enterprise, to follow the Romulan flagship. And <laughs> Scotty calls over to her and says, This is Lieutenant Commander Scott. The Enterprise takes no orders except those of Captain Kirk. And we will stay right here until he returns. And if you make any attempt to board or commandeer the Enterprise, it will be blown to bits along with as many of you as we can take with us. I think Jimmy Doohan, once again, is fantastic. Like, they don't know who they're dealing with, clearly. Yeah. Because, you know, Scotty, especially in the second season, really established himself that if, like, Kirk and Spock are not on the Enterprise, this is exactly the person who you want to be in command. And I like when... When the Romulan commander is like sort of reading the Enterprise, the riot act, you know, Scotty is like, you know, sitting in the chair, like he's like in a in a in a position that is indicating 
that he is not phased by this. And then he just like shakes his head like, no way. Sorry, this is not happening. Um, he's great. He, he's just so perfect in these moments. And A, I think it's so great that we cut to Kirk in the moment of hearing Scotty talk about like that, because even in his crazed role, he can still appreciate what a great engineer he has. And then Did you hear that, you coward? You've betrayed everything of value you ever knew. Did you hear the sound of human integrity? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at this point, it's like so all out of character. A Vulcan among humans living, working with them. I would think the situation would be intolerable to you. I am half Vulcan. My mother is a human. To whom is your allegiance then? Do you call yourself Terran or Vulcan? Vulcan. And they are great together. Joanne Linville and and your father, Adam, are are really, really terrific. There have been a few women, uh, especially ones that, that Spock was romantically linked with, that that he just had amazing chemistry with great volley back and forth. You know, of course one is, uh, you know, from this side of paradise, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jill Ireland, Jill Ireland. Thank you. <laughs> and then later in the third season, Marriott Hartley, uh, as Zarabeth in our yesterdays, which is a fabulous episode, but she, but you know, they're, they're equals. They're both commanders and they're both great. Here's the thing that's weird for me watching this time as a kid, I was just like, they're spies. This is all pretend. Watching it this time, I went, she's talking about his discomfort serving with humans. And then I go, well, wait a minute. Spock is not comfortable. We go back to the naked time and he talks about all the internal conflicts. And so I suddenly went, you know, good, good tip to those liars out there. If you want to tell a good lie, there should be a kernel of truth in it. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. much easier to lie that way. And suddenly I was going, well, she's actually right about some of this, about what it's like for Spock. And then there's the, there's the line in Day of the Dove, you know, in the last act, Spock says, I, you know, find working with humans to be a constant irritant. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely a through line is that Spock serving with humans, it's, it's something he's tolerated, but not necessarily enjoyed. Here's the thing. I mean, this is one of the problems with the episode for me. They, they, this is where you need a close-up. This is where she should really be appealing to Scott, to Spock, and he could be really walking the line mm. where she's like getting to him. That yeah, there there is a ruse going on. That they're playing a game with her. There's definitely that element. But this, I think, would have elevated things for me and given him more gravitas to the episode. Is if she were working on Spock about this one thematic element that we've seen throughout that it is difficult for him, that he is the only alien on the bridge, that there are a a lot of challenges for him to integrate with his human counterparts. Uh, I mean, this is the through line that my dad told me was, you know, his whole mantra for the show is how to give the best that he can be to integrate himself with his human companions as he was as a kid trying to integrate into American society, being the son of Russian immigrants who knew nothing about American society. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fact is that this is a moment that I thought that was kind of missed where we, you know, where we could see that she is in fact having an effect on Spock and he's not just playing it up to, to, you know, to play this role and to, to fool her, but that she's actually getting to him, that she's making him reassess, uh, you know, all the trials that he has been through, that she's appealing to him and saying, look, you're basically superior to these people. You should be running the show. 
Yep. A thought that wouldn't be completely alien to him, although another through line and thematically of Spock and Star Trek and Kirk is that, you know, uh, uh, city on the edge of forever. You will always be by his side. You'll always be there to help him. The loyal companion, always, you know, number two, never any aspiration to take over the, the Enterprise. But this might be the one moment where she might crack that nut a little bit and we might see some reaction from Spock where we don't, we don't know if she's really, you know, that maybe she's getting through to him. I couldn't agree more. I, 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 I love what, I love everything you just said. And, and what I keep going is like, there could have been the moment where Spock is playing the role that he intended to play. And then she says a thing that hits home and he has to readjust. And it's not that he doesn't love, Kirk, because he does. We, but the fact that doesn't mean that McCoy isn't irritating to him. That doesn't mean that he isn't constantly dealing with people who he has to convince of things that he already knows he's right on. You know, yeah, yeah. Like she could definitely, and if she had driven a more successful wedge within his character, then everything else that happened would be more interesting. I, I, I love what you said, Adam. <laughs> Thank you. And he says, to your point, my duty as an officer is to obey him. You are a superior being. Why do you not command? And he says, which he says really throughout the whole series, I don't desire my own command. That's right. Even the mirror universe, Spock, says, I don't want to command the Enterprise uh, when he's talking to Sulu, you know, when they're talking about assassinating Kirk. Which, by the way, I'll make the briefest digression I possibly can. When I showed up at film school, they asked around the table, what do you want to be? Why are you at film school? And basically everyone said, I want to be a writer-director. By the end of the first semester, if you asked everybody if they wanted to be in command, the vast majority is like, no, no, I just want to be an editor. I want to be a writer. I'm a cinematographer. The number of people that actually are suited to be the boss is relatively small. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I mean, the other thing is, you know, in that that episode, you know, the fact is it sometimes is a better position of power to be second, behind the power, to be manipulating. I mean, this is a little bit of Machiavelli's The Prince. I mean, Spock, you know, it's better. It's a more powerful position to be an advisor pulling the strings than the guy out front. So in that respect, it made sense in that episode that Spock would say, I don't even desire a command. I don't need a command. You know, I like pulling strings here and and getting people to do, you know, you know, work at my will. So uh, but but that, you know, it, it does make sense. I mean, it's a great theme, I think, for Spock. We love this about Spock is that, you know, really, in the end, he's really happy with where he's at. And, and that's a big lesson, philosophical lesson of life sure. that so many people don't understand. It's just like, you know, I, I used to complain about the fact that I lost my Hollywood career and I had to go into recovery and I'm teaching film students on the corner of Gower and, uh, and uh, Franklin in a gas station and they're directing a scene badly. And I'm getting a call from my dad who's on Trek 09 with, and it's all JJ this and JJ that and a thousand extras and the camera this and we're doing this. And I'm thinking to myself, this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, I, I really miss being in control and being in command. And my sponsor at the time said, look, you have now chosen a smaller path for yourself. Your task is to walk it well. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think about Spock that is so attractive to me and so appealing is that there is such dignity in the role that he has chosen, that he is happy, that he he's going to play number two as best as anybody can. And I think that's another really attractive element of his character. 
Man, Adam, I'm telling you, I never had the call from my dad on Star Trek 09, but I have definitely been at that gas station on the corner of Gower watching terrible student film directors direct a terrible movie, and I'm sitting there going, what the hell am I doing here for? Yeah, exactly. And then, but then going, oh, but I'm actually teaching it. I'm doing some good, and this is exactly. okay. Exactly. Okay. At that point, I jumped out of my chair, and I said, okay, guys, this is how because they were flailing, and I was yeah, letting yeah. them do it because I was so frustrated, you know, and, and I just thought, okay, he's right. I, I This is the role I'm to play right now. I'm, I'm going to just be teaching film yeah. students who are trying to find their way. That's my job and I'm going to play it well. So it's very inspiring. That's By the what Spock is. Well, well that's, this is also not where that, that ended in Star Trek, because even when we got to the next generation, Riker was almost the same way he liked yep. being second in command he liked yes. supporting captain picard you know when he's given his chance to command the enterprise in best of both worlds part one uh he he says no and he only really does it obviously when picard gets uh, turned into locutus and he assumes command but then when everything works out in part two he goes back to being commander Riker, and he likes being commander Riker, so that was a great connection between tos and next gen in this case i think what's so interesting is that the one thing that probably spock i think is honest about i don't actually want command is the edge that he creates to make the romulan commander think that maybe he does want that uh, because she says opportunities are made and will be i will see to that if you will stop looking on the federation as the whole universe it is not you know that thought has occasionally crossed my mind. And this is where there's that look between him, and she realizes she has something she can exploit. You must have your own ship. Commander, shall we speak plainly? It is you who desperately need a ship. You want the Enterprise. Which she acknowledges is true, that this would have been a big feather in her cap. But it would, and she goes on to say, and it would open up equal opportunities to you. Mm-hmm. And so while they seem to be negotiating to betray the Federation, Kirk is being dragged to the brig, thrown into the brig, which he charges, hits the Romulan force field, which seems a lot stronger than the Enterprise one, and he goes down. Preach to Dr. McCoy. McCoy here. Doctor, you must beam aboard the Romulan flagship immediately. There's been an injury. I don't make house calls. And then Uhura's response she like gives it to McCoy. She's like, Doctor, it's Captain Kirk. She gives it to him. She doesn't say it in a calm way. She's like, you know, pissed. Like, Doctor, it's yeah. it's Captain. She's worried. She's worried. Yes, she's worried. That's what I hear in her voice is worried. Mm-hmm. He, we're, we're back on the Romulan ship. He's examining him and says, You'll recover, but you'll need further attention. Inform your superior. Here's my question Does McCoy know yet? Yep. Yes, he so, does. Somehow Kirk has told him right well, during this examination. And he told him I, in this scene, like Kirk told him, hey, this is all a sham. We're, we're on a mission for the Federation, and this is what it is. I think you're probably right, although I also think it's like, well, there was a Romulan standing right there. Right, Like, right. How, did he, how, how did he actually get this information to McCoy? Uh, that's, what, that's what's strange about it. But I think, I think you're right. Or it's just not written perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, more likely. Um, So uh, the commander and Spock are heading down. They're walking through the corridor. Okay, wait. This this is important. Yes. I at twenty one minutes into this episode, I never noticed this before, but if you're watching the episode on Blu-ray or on you know Paramount Plus or whatever, 
freeze it at exactly the 21 minute mark because above the door to the Romulan commander's quarters, you will see for the first and only time ever the Romulan symbol. Hmm. It's like the Klingons had a symbol. The Romulans had a symbol, but we only see it once. It is, it is, it's designed by Matt Jeffries and it was only used this one time composed of a yellow hexagon with three colored spokes coming out of it seen right above the commander's quarters above her door. Never noticed it in 50 years of watching this show. Noticed it, you know, the other day and, you know, Anyway, continue. <laughs> well, and let me ask you this is a good point to ask this question, Scott. I'm assuming these are mostly just the Enterprise corridors that have been redressed. Excellent question. And I assume the same thing. But in because the, the uh, corridors of the Romulan vessel look very much like the corridors of the Enterprise. And I assume that, well, this is another bottle show, another reason why it came in under budget. And, and for the most part, it is a bottle show. But for one day, Steve Morris and Adam Nimoy... On day four of shooting the Enterprise incident, they shot the scenes aboard the Romulan vessel on Paramount stage number three. So so some of the scenes, maybe a couple of moments, are actually redressed versions of the Enterprise corridors on stage nine. But a lot of the Romulan ship stuff was actually constructed on Paramount stage three. Excellent question. Interesting. And now we get sort of what I will say is the first official moment where the relationship between the Romulan commander and Spock moves from the professional towards possibly something else, which is she first says, I'll expect you for dinner. We have much to discuss. Now, she said, I'll expect you to dinner, which is what a commander would say to a subordinate. And his response is noncommittal. He says, Indeed. Allow me to, to rephrase. Will you join me for dinner? I am honored, Commander. Are the guards also invited? And she gestures, and the guards give them some space. Now, I don't know how general Romulan and Vulcan flirtation works, but that moment of, are the guards going to be there? <laughs> seems pretty <laughs> flirty to me. Yeah, it is. And it's not, it's it's the first of of, of a few lines that are very flirty on the, on the part of, of Spock. And then, as you do, you paint your forbidden corridors bright red <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that when Spock sees them, he starts to turn down. And she immediately, as you do to a, you know, someone from your enemy, tell them. That corridor is forbidden to all but loyal Romulans. <laughs> so it's not the best secrecy here. I hope that one day there will be no need for you to observe any restrictions. Again, everything she plays here to me seems very sexy and flirtatious. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and then there, the camera lingers on that red corridor as well. Clearly, that's where the Romulan cloaking yeah. devices, yes. <laughs> I mean, th- well, this is where, like, the plan of I'm just going to beam over to the ship and somehow we're going to find the most important piece of technology and get off the ship and not get destroyed while by, rest- by being surrounded by three Romulan vessels it doesn't seem like the best plan, <laughs> you know, good thing they painted that corridor red and you happen to walk by it. Otherwise we'd be in deep trouble. McCoy is examining Kirk who is dazed and out of it. Mr. Spock has stated that he believes the captain had no authority or order to cross the neutral zone. Could this uh, mental incapacity have afflicted him earlier? Yes, it's possible. Man, McCoy gets pulled in to testify against Kirk 
<laughs> multiple times. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of them. He was and is unfit to continue in command of the Enterprise. That duty has now fallen on you. Are you ready to exercise that function? I am ready. And McCoy wigs out on him. Spock, I don't believe it. There's no price you could pay that would make him sell out. The matter is not open for discussion, Doctor. What do you mean the matter's not open for discussion? That's enough, Doctor. This is where I go, it's possible he still doesn't know. Okay. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe... Maybe when McCoy beamed back to the Enterprise with Kirk when they're in the transporter room, maybe that's when – but I don't know. I don't think it all makes sense, frankly, because this idea that Spock – does Spock just do something to him that simulates death? Or is Kirk just faking death? Or But they know, but they say the Romulan doctors examine the body. So it can't just be faking death. It's not – he didn't – McCoy didn't inject him with a non-triox compound to simulate oh, death right, like he sure. did in a mock time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and but Spock doesn't actually give him the Vulcan uh, nerve pinch. So what happened? You know, right. like how I don't I just think it doesn't work. It doesn't all track properly. Um, but regardless, watching Shatner slowly groggily come to and muttering to himself, I'll kill you, you as traitor. this scene is going on. You yeah. traitor. Yeah, traitor. I'll kill you. Um, I'll kill you. And then the grip. <laughs> yeah. He charges Spock, who puts his hand up. And it's funny because it's Kirk that initiated what it looks like to get the Vulcan neck pinch. And now he initiates an even bigger one. You know, this is a huge reaction to whatever it is Spock is doing. And he goes down. McCoy examines him and says, what did you do? I was unprepared for his attack. I instinctively used the Vulcan death grip. Instincts are still good, Mr. Spock. The captain is dead. I, I gotta say, Adam, you know, end of act two, that's a pretty big midpoint of, of this episode. The captain is dead. I mean, granted, the, you know, one of the stars of your show, you know, <laughs> there, there's no way that can be. But yeah, at this point, we're going, we all know, we all know that this is a scam. Couldn't he have said, he's dead, Spock? <laughs> But by the way, Adam, one of the jokes we've made throughout is just what a terrible doctor Dr. McCoy is and how completely <laughs> unfamiliar he seems to be with any kind of first aid or procedure. He's just like someone. And in this particular case, it works really to their advantage. He's, yep, a, country doctor. Do. he's a country doctor. Yeah. Damn it. He's not an EMT. <laughs> you want? We come back in act three. Again, there's that really heavy, heavy, powerful music. <laughs> We're in sickbay. Kirk is on a bed under some kind of green light. Chapel is there. And suddenly, Kirk's eyes open. Doctor! Dr. McCoy! I'm absolutely certain the shot in which uh, Shatner's eyes close is a a reverse. reverse. Yeah, Yeah, it's a reverse. For sure. And he comes in, basically says, okay, you got us. It's all a trick. My neck feels like it's been twisted off. That's the Balkan death grip for you. There's no such thing as a Balkan death grip. Oh, but the Romulans don't know that. Sure fool the doctors. You took a big chance that they didn't start an autopsy. Which I think is a real good point. So we're going to let the rest of the crew think he's still dead. Bones, I want you to prepare for surgery. What for? And Kirk has a big smile on his face. So let me ask you a question. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that Alexander Courage returned to score this episode. Now, 
we we've talked before about how there was a uh, some some tension between Alexander Courage and, and Gene Roddenberry because Gene Roddenberry wrote lyrics to the Star Trek theme, which A were never used and B are horrible in an effort to get half the royalties on any any kind of proceeds from the theme of that show, which of course is legendary. So it took like you know, a year and a half for Alexander Courage to return. And compared to the scores that Courage wrote for The Cage, for Where No Man Has Gone Before, and especially The Naked Time, you know, I was never crazy about, about The Man Trap. But how do you think that this score for Alexander Courage compares to the earlier work that he did on the series? My feeling, not comparing them back to back at this moment, it is less subtle. Yep, agreed. It is yeah. less subtle. It's also less exquisite. It's less sublime. You know, the, the every time you see a Romulan shipping it, the, you know, that four bar note, dun, 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 it's just too much. There is. I, I like that. I actually like that sting, but they overuse it. It's it's every single time we come back, we get the same thing and it, it ruins its power. What do you think, Adam? Well, I can't compare them back to back, but I think it's definitely melodramatic. I don't think he's helping. Uh, this particular episode, uh, yeah. it, it, it's a little incongruous to me. It, it's just, it just doesn't feel like it flows. Um, I think they're trying to punch up dramatic moments too much. Uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, this is the thing about the episode. There, there are so many little things out of whack. I mean, even DC Fontana uh, was disappointed in, in various ways in the way the episode came out. Yeah, um, she was. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, they share a common lineage. How could the Romulans not know that there's no... Vulcan death grip. That's just absurd. There's too many, you know, little plot holes like that. Um, you know, th- that, and Bill is over the, you know, a little over the top here and there. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many little things that if they could had been able to tweak them and had spent more time working on it and may, maybe, you know, a different director might've been able to help with some of that. Um, but th- this, this is one of the things I think that throws the episode out of whack for me is that it, the, the score just draws too much attention to itself. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Dorothy Fontana because Adam, uh, when when she wrote this screenplay for the third season, she had already exited the show as a story editor. So now she's just working, contributing to a to Star Trek as a freelance writer because she wanted to do other things. So when she was, you know, really getting into it with Fred Freiberger and Arthur Singer, and you know, they were suggesting things that Spock do in the episode. You know, she actually sent a memo to these guys saying, I've been working on Star Trek since April of 1964. I was a story editor for almost two years. I wrote freaking Journey to Babel. No one knows the show. No one knows this character better than I do. Show me a little respect. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you could tell that she was very irritated that even after her stature, having such a big part. Uh, certainly creatively next to Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman, that that she was just being treated like another writer. Yeah, I just want to add a, a small uh, ancillary comment to uh, Adam, you and I at the corner of Gower at the gas station teaching film school. A lot of film production sucks. <laughs> and that working on these TV shows, there's sometimes I just go like, man, I dodged a bullet. Because this is this is what it's like being disrespected, having your stuff rewritten, dealing with all sorts of bureaucracy. It's not always that much fun. Well, this is, and the thing is, there's always the balance between, you know, the the art and and personalities, the commerce, 
uh, the, the, you know, the financial uh, end of it, the business side. I mean, you know, making this thing, it's, it's a balance. It's very difficult to do and you have to maneuver it. You know, it's, yes. it's, it, you know, it's not easy making this stuff. This is why it's crazy that out of the budgets and the pressure and, and the difficulty and the egos, they managed to come up with such great material. It's just yeah. a miracle that it got made as well as it did any, in, in any case. That's absolutely true. McCoy calls up to the bridge because he wants Scotty to come to sickbay, who's resistant because we're like in a war zone. He finally convinces him. And James Dewan's reaction as he walks into sickbay is one of my favorites. All right, doctor, what's so urgent? Okay, so so Adam, I, I've asked you about your dad's relationship with, with Shatner, your dad's relationship with DeForest Kelly. What do you remember about your father's relationship with James Dewan? Not a thing. Not a thing. Yeah. I mean, I can't, re- I can't recall any anecdotes. Uh, I'm not sure that they were very close. You know, I mean, you know, look, the other thing, Scott, is that, you know, uh, dad was Spock a lot of the time on the set. The guy was in character. Yep. And, and he's just, and you know, I mean, he was very withdrawn and very introspective and trying to remember his lines, a lot of dialogue they had to get through on that day. So there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, fraternizing and socializing. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't even know if they had any relationship whatsoever. I gotta be honest with you. I just don't, because I, we certainly never saw Jimmy doing, I never even had any interaction with him when I was on the set. Uh So so I, so I, I, to my knowledge, there wasn't much of a relationship. Yeah. The only only reason I asked is because one of the, one of the big takeaways that Steve and I have gotten out of this podcast, you know, so far, uh, and definitely one of the biggest takeaways is just how, absolutely awesome James Dewan is as Scotty, especially as the character really evolved further into the second season. Uh, Jimmy's performance is absolutely fantastic. And like Steve, you pointed out that smile (laughs) that uh, Scotty gives to Kirk. Now that Kirk has pointed ears and pointed eyebrows. Captain Kirk. Yes. Well, you look like the devil himself, but, as long as you're alive. What's it all about? Now, here's some trivia. Is that in Fonta- DC Fontana's first story outline, Dr. McCoy actually joined Captain Kirk on getting made up as a Romulan with mm. the ears and the eyebrows. And after so many jokes that McCoy made at Spock's expense with the ears and the eyebrows, now you have McCoy sporting those very same ears and eyebrows. And that was supposed to be the source of a great moment or a few great moments throughout this episode. Now that Spock is looking at McCoy and at one point Spock looks at McCoy for the first time with the ears and the eyebrows and he winces. Um, But Bob Justman in an effort to save time and money and correctly pointing out that other than this light moment, there really wasn't anything to be gained by having McCoy don the ears and the eyebrows. So he suggested dropping that. Another element that was very present in Fontana's outline was that Spock's father, Sarek, was on the Enterprise. Oh. Right. Uh, right? Totally Oh, And he was the one negotiating with the Romulans on behalf of the Federation to buy time until Kirk and McCoy stole the Romulan vest, uh, the 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 uh, cloaking device. So, this was also a suggestion of Bob Justman, who said, 
why are we giving so much action to Sarek when we should be giving so much more attention to Spock? So they dropped the Sarek character, gave Spock the the uh, the, the role of stalling the Romulans, and then it was also Justman who suggested adding in the bromance. So Bob Justman, a very, very big creative force throughout the series, but definitely in this episode, making a lot of good decisions. I, I, I like all of those decisions. I think the McCoy one, it would have made the tag better had McCoy been in the Vulcan in the with the ears. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I don't think it's worth it, you know, for that. And the um I love Sarek. I've said, man, I sure wish we had another Sarek episode in the original series, but this would have been a waste. It would have been the wrong place for him. Yep. Agreed. You know, yeah. So so I think those are all good choices. I also like the little gleam in Scotty's eyes when he realizes he has to get a uniform from one of his Romulan prisoners. <laughs> uh, it'll be a pleasure. That's great. Uh, and now we're back in the Romulan commander's quarters and she's had some Vulcan dishes prepared. And then she pours him a glass of Romulan ale. Scotty, are you sure we have a clear channel to spot? Aye, sir. No doubt of it. Then we can't wait any longer. Prepare to beam me aboard the flagship. But Mr. Spock hasn't sent the proper coordinates. It can't be helped, Scotty. You're taking an awful chance, Jim. Just don't put me inside a bulkhead. Energize. And now we switch to an orange drink, which... Is it Tranya? I was... I absolutely... <laughs> that is my thought exactly. Tranya. <laughs> like, they went from Romulan ale you know, the blue stuff to Tranya. I'm totally like looking at my notes here. Uh, they switched to, uh, are they drinking Tranya with two question marks? And you guys thought the same thing. I love this. <laughs> C- clearly the rule never mix, never worry does not apply to Romulan ale and Tranya. Those, right, those right. go, go together. Great. Yeah. Beer um, before liquor gets even sicker. <laughs> yeah. um. You have nothing in Starfleet to which to return. I often, Anytime you see someone cutting off their own line, I think it's interesting. She started to say, I offer, and then changes it to... We offer you an alternative. We will find a place for you, if you wish it. A place? With me. And I'm going like, she is so into him at this point. Well, wait a minute, Steve. She is so into him. But at this point... The question is, is he into her or is he still doing his job? I think his curiosity has been piqued at this point. And I think the next thing that she says is going to increase that because she says. Romulan women are not like Vulcan females. We are not dedicated to pure logic and the sterility of non-emotion. People are warriors, often savage, but we are also many other pleasant things. I mean, that is some serious flirtation. For sure, for sure. So the reason I asked that question is because up to, you know, at a certain point, there is no question that Spock really starts to care romantically about the Romulan commander. And this dynamic made me think of a, of a beloved episode from season one that I've really, really grown to love as I've gotten older, which is The Conscience of the King. And in that episode, Kirk is sort of playing along Lenore Caridian mm, because mm-hmm. he's trying to get information out of her. He's using yeah. her 
But at, cert- at a certain point, and that's open to debate, and we talked about that in our deep dive of Conscience of the King, Kirk grows to really care about Lenore. So now here we have Spock using the Romulan commander to buy time for Kirk to take the caulking device. But at some point, Spock does really cross over and begin to care about the Romulan commander. Are we there yet? Adam, what do you think? The difficulty for me is, again, we have this, for me, there's a staging problem because she's in a reclined position Mm -hmm. and they don't move throughout the whole scene. And the scene is really about, it's a seduction scene. It is really her offering a lot to Spock. Uh, you know, the subtext is I'm offering you command. You know, I mean, I mean, overtly, she's saying I'm offering you a position, you know, in, in command. And the subtext is I'm offering you myself. But you, it's so hard to play when you got two people sitting there and you're just cutting back and forth between the two. I mean, she's very seductive. It would have been much more interesting to see the dance. It is a seduction scene. She moves to him. She moves away from him. She's trying to reel him in. She's fishing for him. Is he going to take the bait? Does he take the bait because he's interested in her, or is he just playing the role? I mean, they, you know, they don't do the dance. I mean, the next thing we see, they're, you know, they're in it, and it would be much to me. This is another one of the lost opportunities of this episode. That that they really, these are two actors who are really up to speed and and up to the task, and really could have done very well if they had been on their feet and they, and she was toying with him, playing with him and seeing where, where he stood, is he going to stand his ground or does he move over to her? You know, these are the, this is where you really play it up to the line. Is he going to cross the line or is he just going to be Spock and just play the role that he's supposed to play to, 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 you know, to, to buy time so that Kirk can get on and get the device. So again, I think we have a missed opportunity here. It's hard to say really what's going on. And I think it would have been more interesting if Spock walked the line where we're not sure. It looks mm-hmm. like she is, in fact, appealing to him. Yep. I mean, he's half human, for God's sake. <laughs> itch, you know, the guy's got this, you know, we don't see enough of the seven-year itch. And it would be really interesting to see if she was appealing to his, you know, his manhood, his masculinity, and, and bringing him in. And we just, it's just missing from me. And I, so much more could have happened there. And it really is it really is a seven year itch with the seven year life cycle sure. on far. <laughs> um again, again, it's a great point. And it's just it seems like just a staging thing is that like if he was either sitting or standing and she was moving behind him, then you could be in one shot with his face towards camera so we could see see him reacting to what she's saying and doing without her necessarily seeing his reactions. And absolutely. Yeah. Or, or her coming to camera and, and saying stuff that's alluring with her back to him to see mm-hmm. if, if he's going to come to her for her to test him yeah. more to yep. see if it's working or her walking around him. Yeah. Maybe even touching him at some point. Right. I mean, there's much more to be explored in the staging that's simply not there. You're great, absolutely great right. Great points. The lines that I find most interesting is after she says this thing about Romulan women, and he says, I was not aware of that aspect of Romulan society. She says, As a Vulcan, you would study it. As a human, you would find ways to appreciate it. Here's what I find so interesting about that line, is that from the beginning of Star Trek, and particularly what gets revealed in The Naked Time, we know that Spock is half Vulcan, half human, but his choice is to be 100% Vulcan. Right. That's how he's dealing with this. And we know that that is a painful, that's painful for him. That's causing him regret and shame and all of these things. And he's just repressing all that. 
And she has now presented an alternative way to deal with the two sides of her personality. As a Vulcan, you can be fully Vulcan and study this thing, and you can be fully human and enjoy the thing. You don't have to repress one side of yourselves. You can embrace both sides of yourselves if you come with me. Right. This is the whole point is that we don't see the struggle. There's not enough of the struggle of, of, of him trying to keep control of his emotions and not get carried away by this woman. I mean, the fact is she is seductive. She is capable. She is a commander. She is attractive. Yeah. You know, it, it's a seduction scene, but I just wish we had seen more of, of uh, Spock fighting to maintain, you know, the decorum of why he's there and what missions he's on. We just, I just feel that, that that could have been, again, given so much more weight to the scene. But this next line, Spock leans in and says, Please believe me, I do appreciate it. Does he appreciate it at this moment? Yep, I agree. Yeah, I think so. I think 100%. I think, he, I think there is no question at this I don't think he's tempted. I don't think there's ever a moment where I truly believe that Spock might betray Kirk and the Enterprise. Exactly. Right. There's right. no way that's going to happen. Right. But that doesn't mean I don't think he is suddenly genuinely attracted to her and, let's say, turned on to. Now one final step to make the occasion complete. You will lead a small party of Romulans aboard the Enterprise. And there you will take your rightful place as its commander. And you will lead the ship to a Romulan port with my flagship at its side. She's laying out what is required, and he says, Yes, of course. But not just this moment. An hour from now will do even better. What's he saying? What is the meaning of an hour from now? Well, there's two meanings to that. One is Captain Kirk is going to need more time to steal the cloaking device. Yes. But what she is hearing and what he is, he wants her to hear is, uh, let's, let's, let's kind of hold off on that for a second. No, no, no. What specifically is he saying? Hold off how? Hold off. Hold off. I think he's saying, I'll give you my answer. Let's have sex. Yeah. Well, definitely. That's exactly what he's saying. So here's the question. If things went a different way. Is Mr. Spock, was he prepared to have actual sex with the Romulan commander in order to steal that cloaking device? All in the line of duty. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> right. In early versions of the screenplay or the outline, there was a much more overt romance that had them not touching the hands, but actually kissing. And Fontana insisted on changing it. This was what led to some of the uh, some of the clashes with Freiberger saying, like, look, that's not what Vulcans do. There's no way Spock would do that, even though, full disclosure, we are seeing that in Strange New Worlds that he actually is kissing, you know, like like a human. But she insisted on having their ritual be more alien in nature. And actually, Adam, it was your father who was who was obviously very, very protective of Spock, who said absolutely positively no way will Spock engage in this kind of behavior in this way. Well, but again, you have to remember this side of paradise, he kisses Jill Ireland. Well, that's different because under in, in this side of paradise, he is under the influence of the spores. He is, he is not acting in his own free will uh, whereas in this one, he is. Yeah, it's also interesting that 
Layla is human in that episode and 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 uh, the commander is Romulan. So it's nice that they decided not to just go down that road again. Right. Right. And also, like like we pointed out and like everybody knows, Spock is half human. And if he wanted and the spores, you know, the spores in the side of paradise definitely elevated the human side of him, which is why he just like went right for it and and had that romance with Layla Kalomi. And and look, the Romulans have emotions. If he wanted to do that, he certainly could. But it was, you know, your dad and Fontana were just like, hang on. You know, we've been on the show since day one. I know this character. There's no way he would do this. And I think that for the for the sake of the show, we should make it more alien. And that's why they resisted the touching of the lips and did the thing with the hands. I think what they do with the hands is potter, frankly. I agree. I mean, it's really, I think it's pretty steamy. I mean, it's a little embarrassing for me to say, but <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's very sensual. It's very, it's really, it's great foreplay. It's hot. I think yeah. it's a really hot scene. And you have to understand, you know, the, just again, we're in 68. We're only two and a half years basically away from black and white TV. Yeah. And, and, sure. and you know, Jerry Finnerman, who's still lighting at this point, it is red. It is color. It is gorgeous. It's lush. It's fantasy. It's gorgeous. And, uh, you know, and the power of touch. I mean, you know, uh, it, it is not to be underestimated. And they really show what it all means to be that close to be, you know, you know, and to have that kind of energy and that kind of a chemistry going on just through the power of touch. Uh, we we have talked so much about Jerry Finnerman. Uh, throughout this the series so far and and i mean he is a genius the way he lit every scene uh was was a work of art and what i loved about his work on uh, the enterprise incident is that a lot of the gel colors that he used for the enterprise incident very much matched up to the gel colors that he used on Balance of Terror. Mm. So, I mean, Steve, you if you watch both these episodes back to back, you could see that Finnerman really like is like, oh, okay, this is a Romulan ship again. We got to make it look like a Romulan ship. And these are the colors that I have to use. So it jives with, uh, or gels rather, with what we saw in Balance of Terror. That's, that's just great. I, I love also, by the way, that as they're finally kind of acknowledging their attraction to each other, she says... You do know I have a first name. I was beginning to wonder. And then rather than saying the first name, she moves behind him, leans in, and whispers it to him. And he leans back and says, How rare and how beautiful. I love that we don't hear it. Much like we never hear Spock's first name. Wow. Wow. And, 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 and Spock mentioned his first name. In the episode we've been referring to, this side of paradise, wow! And then, and even then, and then he, he, man, Spock's got some moves. I mean, he might not have a lot of opportunities for romance, but the guy can. The guy's a bit of a player because his next moment is after saying her name is rare and beautiful. He says, "But so incongruous when spoken by a soldier." He is playing her totally. He needs a private moment to call the captain. Look, I mean, she's he he has her eating out of his hands at this point, you know, so she motions to go and to change into something more comfortable. And he gets up, flips open his communicator. And that's the moment where you go. Nope. Spock is still with us 100 percent. 
Well, and there are multiple things that go on in this moment. So she's going off to slip into something more comfortable. He's giving Kirk the information who's already on the ship about where to find the cloaking device. And at the same time, Subcommander Tao and his people have heard that there's some signal and where it's coming from. So they're investigating that. And I love Spock handles this just perfectly of Kirk is asking him a question. Will you be able to get back to the Enterprise without attracting their attention? Unknown, Captain. At present, I am rather heavily... And that's when the door opens and he hides his communicator and turns to her. And she is in what I think maybe more than almost any other dress I've seen in Star Trek. I could totally see this on the rack of some store that people, I mean, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous dress. It is, it is a timeless looking dress. It was hot in 1968. And if, uh, you know, if, if any woman uh, wore that today, uh, she would look absolutely perfect i mean you know it doesn't look dated it's not like it's like you know uh you know mini skirt with go-go boots that's a that's a beautiful night dress and of course designed by star trek's wardrobe uh, costume designer uh bill tice it's hard to believe i can be so moved by the touch of an alien hand i must confess that i too am moved emotionally is that true yes i think so i think so too i I think i think by this point you know spock is still very much on our side but i think that he he certainly uh realizes that he that he cares in his way about about the romulan commander i know it is illogical mr spock we mustn't question what we truly feel now, all Spock has ever done is question what he truly feels. That is his whole, I, you know, is it logical? If it's not logical, I'm going to repress that feeling. And I think in this weird, this is the big thought I had about this episode. And, and Adam, I agree with you about the, the flaws of it. But I also go, is this the beginning of the wise Spock that we're going to meet 20 years later, who has found some balance between accepting his own emotions and humanity and maintaining the logical, wise Vulcan guy? You know, I mean, like the spot that we see in Star Trek six right. or in Star Trek two, you know, she says we mustn't question what we truly feel. The idea that the, you're having those emotions to die, deny the existence of those emotions, that in and of itself would be illogical. Wow. Good, good question. What, what do you what's your take on that, Adam? <laughs> no, I think it's very powerful. This is why I think she's well written, you know, uh, to to really challenge Spock and and why it's believable that he would. Uh, lose some of himself to her, that he would, that she, you know, that he would let his guard down with her. She's formidable. She's a worthy opponent. She is a worthy seductress. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's really cool that, um, that she, and she plays it so well. Uh, I think it's all believable. I, you know, I just don't feel it. I think we needed, I think they needed more visual storytelling to let us see how close these people really were to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe more action. You know, it's very difficult to convey this stuff all through dialogue. It's very difficult. Um, it, you know, again, when you see this side of paradise, they're all over the place. Yeah, they're all over the planet. They're they're here. They're there. They're on the ship. You know, they're in the cornfield. They're you know you know they're just everywhere. There's more action to play between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not. It's very difficult to do this in a bottle show where they're both in a room. And you need more blocking. You need more mm. action between them. You need something else happening uh, between them where we can see the physical proximity 
uh, between the two of them. Uh, I, I just think this is the things that are just so missing for me. You need close-ups. Look in uh, uh, the Doomsday Machine when we see that William Wyndham is put is is sticking it to Spock, and I'm taking command of the Enterprise. Close-up on Spock. Yep. Yep. Tight close-up. Mm-hmm. Tight. Mm-hmm. Where he's struggling, you can see. Oh my God, I may have to. I may lose command of this ship to this nutcase. But I just don't see enough of that here where the guy's really struggling like, oh, my God, this guy's really falling in love with her. And right in this moment, that is when we get a buzz at the door and it is Subcommander Tal who insists on coming in. And, sa- and of course, we know the- what's going on at this moment. Commander, we have intercepted an alien transmission. Located source. We have, Commander, this room. And she has a reaction as the truth comes clear to her. And I love Spock's entrance and just calmly pulling out his communicator and going, you got me. He wants that to happen. Like he doesn't even like try to be like, I don't know. What are you talking about? I've, nope. I've been here with you the whole time. He doesn't try to hide it at all. He just like, just walks right in. Like, you know, he, he walks to the camera and holds up his communicator. And she's like, you know, surprise. <laughs> and there's a reaction and she makes that connection real quick and says the cloaking device and they head off. Kirk is now in uh, the room where the cloaking device is, meets another guard. This guard, he can't play his little look over there games quite as easily. Yeah. Forces him to drop his weapon. He does. And as the guy slowly kneeling down to pick up that weapon, he looks down just for a sec. And that is all the time Kirk needs to take him out. So the Romulan cloaking device looks really familiar yes. because it's basically and, – and Steve, I know how much you love when they save money. <laughs> yes. uh, and in this case, the Romulan cloaking device, instead of being a purely original thing that was created uh, by like Matt Jeffries and, and whoever, uh, it is uh, leftover parts of Nomad from – I knew Angel. it. Oh, yes. my God. I knew it. Yep, yep. Yes. Leftover from – It looks from, like Nomad upside down or it's, something. Yeah. It's Nomad – Plus, Sargon's receptacle from Return to Tomorrow. There you go. There you go. If Sargon and Nomad had a baby, it would look like the Romulan. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) That's just awesome. Well, that's another thing that, uh, you know, that I I have a little bit of trouble with in that episode is, you know, is is that device and then trying to put it into the Enterprise. I mean, it's like they they got they got to go to Radio Shack and get the you know the connecting uh, <laughs> yeah yeah you know they, uh, they need a USB uh, adapter yeah, connect, you know. connecting device yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it uh, yeah I 100% agree I mean that's just so true there's so many shows of like well I'll just hack into the FBI computer here you know there's so many shows where the technology just does what we need it to do at that moment right. but he he gets he manages to disconnect the cloaking device beams back to the Enterprise but sir what about Mister Spock just have to hope you can buy us enough time to get this cloaking device installed. Well, it'll have to be hooked into our deflector shield control. Can you do it? I don't know, sir. We have 15 minutes, got it. The Romulan commander, Spock, Subcommander Tal, and all of them enter the cloaking device room. This is bad staging to me because, by the way, nobody looks at the center of the room where the cloaking device is missing until later. They're all looking somewhere else first because yeah. they, the director wanted the moment where they turned and looked. It's like, no, they would all be looking there the moment they walked into the room. Full alert. Search all decks. That will be profitless, Commander. I do not believe you will find it. And then her next line. Why would you do this to me? What are you that you could do this? And his response. 
is so right on point as if to say, you never had me. First officer of the Enterprise. And she slaps him. And boy, do you feel that slap. No matter how many times I've watched this episode, the moment when the Romulan commander slaps Spock, when Joanne Linville slaps your dad, I go, that must have (laughs) hurt. And Joanne Linville actually said of the slap, it thrilled me that this strong military woman would lose her discipline for that one brief moment and slap him. I really slapped him. I didn't tell him it was going to be anything other than, quote unquote, a stage slap. I just did it. It was real. He took the slap right. One take, babe. And my guess, uh, Adam, knowing what I've heard about your dad, I bet he was thrilled that it was uh, that she gave him a real slap. I think he would have said, go ahead and hit me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that gets rough on take eight. But, but, but take one take. One, yeah, but take one's pretty good. What is your present form of execution? And that is the end of Act Three. In Act Four, uh, Scotty is struggling to get that cloaking device installed. I think it was a USB mini. Is that was the <laughs> yeah. problem? That was the plug that he needed. Uh, we here we have less than fifteen minutes. And then again, the reaction when James Dewan first saw Kirk alive with the Romulan makeup was great. The the reactions when he walks onto the bridge might be even better. Yeah, it reminded me of that moment in the Deadly Years. Yes, when Kirk walks back onto the bridge, young after basically dying of old age. Where in that episode, what does he do? He saves the Enterprise from the Romulans. And Mm. now he's about to pull the same stunt with the Romulans by getting the Enterprise out of there fast. Execution of state criminals is both painful and unpleasant. Which is a line that I both like and find redundant. I can't, I'm right real on the fence about it. <laughs> yeah. It made no sense to me. You know what it, it, is, it is redundant. It's like, uh, it's really painful and it's also Unpleas- not unpleasant. terribly pleasant. <laughs> the sentence will be carried out immediately after the charges have been recorded. I demand the right of statement first, which I think she's a little bit impressed with that she knows about. And she goes, okay, you can do it. I shall not require much time. No more than 20 minutes, I should say. I guess for some reason he knows that Kirk gave Scotty 15 minutes to install the Romulan uh, cloaking device on the Enterprise. Recording the Romulan right of statement. My crime is sabotage. I freely admit my guilt. One of the things I like about her performance is you can see how angry she is. And how she is also a disciplined person who is obeying all the proper forms. From start to finish, absolutely. The discipline is always there, no matter what. The oath I swore as a Starfleet officer is both specific and binding. And he goes on, and it's so funny because this is, it's like a filibuster. You know what I mean? Absolutely it is. Yeah. I'm going to keep talking to keep this thing going. On the bridge, Kirk, who started the whole episode by criticizing Chekhov, is criticizing Chekhov and says, Chekhov, there's only one Vulcan aboard that ship. He should be easy enough to locate. Uh, And I like the way this is done, which is the first he starts to make an excuse about how similar Vulcans and Romans are. And then in the middle of it, he says, Got him, sir. And what I love about seeing Chekhov back at the science station. Now, we've seen him a couple of times take over for Spock at the science station. 
But when we're first introduced to the character of Chekhov in the first episode that Walter Koenig filmed at the start of season two, which was Cat's Ball, we did not see Chekhov at the navigation station. We saw him at the science station. So, you know, for a show that gets, I don't want to say criticized, but pointed out for being very episodic and standalone, you have some really, really well thought out through lines like, well, it's like, who's going to take over for Spock at the science station? There's only one person. It has to be Chekhov. So we're going to beam Spock aboard and they start to energize and the Romulan commander realizes what's happening and the last minute grabs onto him. And on the bridge... Transporter room reports Mr. Spock aboard, sir, and the Romulan commander. The commander? Aye, sir. <laughs> All right. All right, here's my question. Why did she do that? I, look, I, I don't know. It's very unclear to me what's going on. I mean, it, it's her attempt to, to stay in control, to not let them get away, uh, to, to try to turn the gambit around. I, you know, listen, this is the thing about the whole, the, the end of the episode, because it would have been an interesting twist if in fact, and we, and they don't really play this, but I'm just wondering if it was a kernel of an idea that this was intentional on her part, that she was mm. defecting, that she uh, wanted to go with them, Oh, that wow. she wanted to get away. I mean, otherwise, you know, they, they've totally got her and they, they outdid her. And, you know, and this, again, it's not PC. The men got the woman, you know, she wasn't up to their game they won the game they beat her at her own game it would have been very interesting to me if we had seen at the end that maybe there was something else going on here maybe this was her game after all to defect so i don't think i think that would have been a very interesting thing i don't think there's anything in this episode that says that she might be likely to defect i think it's very much the opposite she seems very secure in her position and her relationship to the romulan military here's the way i I i'll reframe your question scott okay if it was Kirk and someone was just about to beam out, having stolen something really important from the Enterprise, would he do that and put himself in the position of taking on a whole other ship all by himself? No. Yes, I think he totally would. That's what Kirk does throughout the whole oh, series. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You mean would Kirk have jumped if in? If he was the Romulan commander, oh, would oh, he oh, have oh. jumped in and be transported over to the Romulan ship to recover something that had been stolen by the Enterprise? Oh, oh I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because he's got, a, he's got to live another day. He's got to, you know, he's got to try to see if he can turn things around. Listen, yep. this is, this is, you know, I, the echo of this is Catherine Hicks grabbing Kirk when he's beaming off of Earth in Star Trek Four. Great. Great. Wow. Point, Adam. Great point. Great, great point. And in her case, the Romulan cloaking device were George and Gracie. She had a stake. Those right. whales. She had a stake. Yeah. And she, yeah. And there was nothing, you know, that's where they set it up there. That, you know, that it was more plausible, but it's the same thing to me. This is why it would have been much more interesting if, 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 you know, the Romulan commander had another game up her sleeve. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, it just would have been much more interesting. I, I would say it's not defecting. I think if she had if she had some kind of Kirk-like plan, if she had a hand grenade and I was like, I'm going to blow up the Enterprise if you don't return the cloaking device. You know, if she had another plan, that would have been cooler. Yeah, like if she um, had a thermal detonator. <laughs> yeah. Um, but by the way, one thing uh, is that. This is definitely an episode where it's like, man, you remember those transponders we had back in um, Patterns of Force? That would have been real useful when we were trying to locate Spock on this Romulan ship. Excellent man, we should have used those things again. Yep, yep. Take us away from the Romulan. Warp Factor 9. The Romulan ships are in pursuit to destroy the Enterprise that's taken off. 
Scotty is trying to get this cloaking device to work. I would give you credit, Captain, for getting this far. But you will be dead in a moment. And Kirk thinks he has another weapon to bring to bear. And he opens up a channel and says to Tal, We have you under our weapons enterprise. You cannot escape. This is Captain Kirk. Hold your fire. We have your commander aboard. Commander. And in this moment, the Romulan commander, exactly what Kirk would have done in this situation, yells, Destroy this vessel. I gave you a direct threat. Tell! And that is exactly what he did in A Taste of Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Right? General Order 24 or General Order 4 or whatever it was. You're right. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point, Steve, uh, uh, that, that Kirk would be doing the exact same thing. And there's no question that Tal's going to obey this order. It's ready now, Captain, but I don't know whether our circuits can handle this alien contraption. Throw the switch. It'll likely overload. Throw, Throw the, the switch. switch. <laughs> and I, I think James Dewan does some very silly physical acting that I can hear the director saying, you're very reluctant to push that button, so show the reluctance and then finally push it. And at that moment, the Enterprise is going at warp nine and it disappears and the Klingon vessel in pursuit starts opening fire. This is actually in the version with the new visual effects, but the Enterprise has already gone on a different course and is not in the line of fire. And uh, basically, mission going from mission impossible to mission accomplished. We'll let you off at the nearest Federation outpost. You are very generous, Captain. If I may be taken to your brig, I will take my place as your prisoner. Mr. Spark will have the honor of escorting you to your quarters. To your quarters, not the brig, because Kirk is once again showing showing mercy and compassion. They head off to the turbo lift, and I find this scene real interesting. Yeah, it is. All the Federation wanted was the cloaking device. The Federation. And what did you want? It was my only interest. When I boarded your vessel. And that's exactly all you came away with. You underestimate yourself, Commander. We get a little bit of the politics of it, which is that eventually we're going to figure out how to read that cloaking device. I I love Spock's line. He goes, military secrets are the most fleeting of all. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) I don't know. I I think there are other secrets that are more fleeting. (laughs) I like the I totally like the line, but I'm not sure if I think it's true. But the next line, I hope that you and I exchanged something more permanent. What is he saying? Well, he's basically saying, I cared about you. I care about you. Yeah. And I will, I will always care about you. And her, and I find this, I go back and forth about whether or not this is beautifully ambiguous writing or if it's too ambiguous. She says, It was your choice was the only choice possible which choice are they referring to the choice that spock made to be loyal to starfleet yeah and to his commanding officer and to his best friend james t kirk his choice was and he said as long as i wear the uniform i am loyal to the federation and starfleet that was his choice but then she as they go to exit the turbo lift, she turns around and puts her hand on his chest and says, it will be our secret. Well, there's one more line first that's really important, I think. What is that? Because he doesn't just say it was the only choice possible. The next thing he says is, you would not respect any other 
What does that mean? Well, okay, that's a great question. I think from the very beginning, one of the things that attracted the Romulan commander to Spock was, was his loyalty to Starfleet, was his loyalty to Captain Kirk. And if he would have betrayed that loyalty in any way, she would have lost respect for him. The thing that she loved about him or that she grew to like about him intimately would have been gone. Adam, what do you think? No, I think that's true. I think uh, if he capitulated to her and then just betrayed, uh, you know, 18 years of service to Starfleet, I think she would not have respected him. I mean, if she's going to betray Starfleet, why wouldn't he betray her or them at some other point in time? I mean, really, there's no... I mean, the, the fact is, he's a soldier. You know, what are you? I'm the first officer of the Enterprise. One of the most powerful lines in the whole show. Uh, and I love that line. You know, how, you know, what kind of person are you that you would do this to me? I'm the first officer of the Enterprise. You know, like the, the, the I think that she actually would have, the very thing that, that she liked about him would have been gone. See, and this is where I go. I agree with all that. And I think this is where the show is just a bit underwritten because the idea of if we had slept together, and I had gone with you, we would have had a good time, but you would have lost respect for me. It is, it's my essential integrity that you're in fact attracted to. Therefore, we cannot be together because you would lose that respect. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, the whole point then is really at the end, this is again, the thing that, and I, I know it's, you know, it's kind of retrospective and uh, hindsight and backseat driving, but the fact yeah. is, that's our job on this podcast. I understand. <laughs> the point is that she should love him more in that moment. If that is true, and I believe it is, that she would have disrespected him or lost interest in him or, or, or not been so attracted to him if he had capitulated to her, the fact that he didn't, she should love him more. And yes. this is why I'm just, we're just missing something here because I just want to see this guy torn up over the fact that She's going to get thrown in the brig or she, he's got to let her go to to uh, security. They're going to take her away. There, something's got to happen here that's just not happening. Well, I, I think I think, Adam, that at this moment, when they go to exit the turbo lift and and she and she says to him with her hand on his chest, it will be our secret. I think this is the moment where she does reveal a deeper affection for him for maintaining his loyalty yeah and she maintains her dignity but there's no tragedy there's no loss yeah something is missing you're right yeah she's going to her quarters and they're going to drop her off at some you know outpost hello like like and and then what you know uh spock can always go back and they can start dating again no well well like at the end of you know and we've referenced this side of paradise many times like like at the end of that episode you really felt for spock you really felt like he was he lost something he says for the first time in my life i was happy happy. yeah and that's like quasimodo saying she gave me water and it tears your heart out i am with him all the way with that yeah and that's what's missing here She was torn from him, Mm -hmm. torn from him. And to see him have to deal with the fact that this woman who might have been one of his true loves is being taken away. Then you've got something going. Right. It's it's, well, and this, it just goes to show it's really hard to make an episode of TV. And, and it's like, they got a lot of the pieces, like they've lined up a bunch of the chess pieces, but they don't have that final checkmate at the end. Like for instance, 
I think I think it was a mistake that Kirk sent her to her quarters. What if Spock at the end had locked her in the brig? Then visually, you would have had a more powerful emotional moment, and they been could under, stare at yes, you. exactly. Been under orders to go lock her in the brig, yeah, or um, under orders to turn her over to security. But what I like, and that's what's so interesting, is that I think this relates to Balance of Terror in a great way, which is at the end of Balance of Terror, Kirk is like, "Hey, come on over. Let's we'll rescue your uh, survivors." And the and the Romulan commander, who also doesn't have a name, says, "That's not our way." It's all about personal honor. And this moment of you would not respect any other choice is also all about personal honor. And so they really, it really can work. And I think it does work. I just don't think it works as well as maybe we wish. Yeah, it could. I, I agree with both of your points. Uh, you know, on, on a scale of one to 10, that, that uh, conviction of the, of the relationship and, and of a, a love that's lost instead of going to 10, it's more like a 7.5. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. Sick bay to bridge. What is it, Bones? Well, if all the shouting's over up there, I'd like for you to report to sick bay. What for? Well, you're, you're in surgery. I'm going to bob your ears. And, and Kirk sits there for a second and he's like, he's like, you know, about to say like, Oh, well, you know, maybe I'll come down soon, you know? And Spock is like, captain, Please go. <laughs> it's really, really a good moment. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, this is a Coonism without Gene Coon actually being there. <laughs> it, it, it's okay, but the more I think about Adam, your suggestions is like tonally, it also detracts from what's going on with Spock. Um, but that does bring us with these last looks to the end of the Enterprise incident on Enterprise incidents. And Joanne Linville was being courted to reprise her role as the Romulan commander for Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode Face of the Enemy. Now, because this episode is 100 years later, I'm guessing that she would have been more like a Romulan admiral, but uh, she was unavailable to do that episode. However, have you guys ever heard of Star Trek Continues? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So this is an 11-episode series created and produced by fans, uh, and it is – the next best thing to the original series. It really is extraordinary what these 11 episodes have done. And I would say, uh, honestly, uh, if I had a choice between watching Star Trek Continues or Strange New Worlds, uh, I think Star Trek Continues is the better show. Uh, and yes, I am on the record for saying that. Although I do love Strange New Worlds, I think it's 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 a really, really good show. I like it a lot. But the episode of Star Trek Continues, it's called... To Boldly Go, Part 1. It's the second to the last episode, episode 10 of 11. And the daughter of Joanne Linville, who is Amy Rydell, plays the part of the Romulan commander that was originated by her mother. And not only does she look just like her mother when she's all made up as the Romulan commander, but her acting performance is phenomenal. So for everyone who's been listening to this deep dive of the Enterprise incident, now that you are almost finished, when you are done, I strongly urge you to watch the Star Trek Continues episode to Boldly Go Part 1 because the resemblance is absolutely uncanny and it's actually a really, really good episode. All 11 of these episodes are absolutely fantastic. And 
Uh, uh, by at, the way, Scott, just as you were speaking, I because I have the internet, I looked up pictures of her in Star Trek. Man, she really does look exactly like it's, her. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, and and again, I mean, you know, like like with with this, this is a fan made series, and it is it is like the the attention to detail that they have for not just the writing and the character beats, but definitely the set design, the uh, the cinematography. I mean, they definitely obsessed over Jerry Finneman's cinematography. Now, we always like to talk about like what the people say about the Enterprise incident. And actually, Adam, your father said this about the Enterprise incident. He said, episodes like the Enterprise incident made it exciting to go to work. It had an edge to it, an adult level of complication and social commentary. The characters' lives were being affected, their ethics violated, even their spirituality touched. Scripts like this added to the moral structure of the Star Trek universe. That's beautifully said. Joanne Linville said, I liked it a lot. And I mean a lot. I liked how it ended with her walking strongly with dignity into that elevator, the Toberlift. I still think she's out there somewhere. Uh, she would have found a way to have recovered. I think the show turned out wonderfully. The thing that I did take away from the show was a part of that character, the Romulan commander. The way I stand and carry myself, it came from her. She passed away a couple of years ago, but this was a recent interview that she did for uh, the These Are the Voyages books written by mm -hmm. Mark Cushman. And uh, uh, that brings us to the end of, of Enterprise, of the Enterprise incident, like you said, Steve, on Enterprise incidents and Adam. After this conversation, after rewatching this episode recently, like what are your final thoughts on the Enterprise incident? Uh, well, I still think it's very good TV. I think it's groundbreaking. Uh, I think it's exciting. I'm so proud of the series. I'm so proud of the work Dad did. I think he looks terrific in the episode. The work still stands. I'm really proud of the work he did. And uh, it's a great show. I still love it. You know, I mean, I have a very much the same feeling I have when you know, in the 70s, I was not watching syndicated TV. I was not watching the series when everybody in college was. But then I got to Berkeley and everybody would empty out at five o'clock and go to the TV room to watch Star Trek. And and I started dating a girl from uh, Switzerland. She knew nothing about it. And we started watching every night at five o'clock. And it just reinvigorated my love and my fervor for the show. I mean, I really feel like, you know, I was in it when they were making it. I was in it when it was airing as a kid. I I, you know, I, I did the cosplay in 66 before it aired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, you I, did. I, still claim, I did. I still claim the title of the first Trekkie. Huh. And seeing these episodes, even though there are flaws and there's shortcomings, um, it's still clear as to why it has persevered over time. And uh, I just, I, I'm so proud of the work uh, that they all did. And that especially that my dad did um, so many years ago, that it's still relevant. Steve, what are your thoughts, final thoughts on the Enterprise incident? So I think I, I feel like given a lot of them, I definitely agree with Adam, your diagnosis of the issues within this episode, and they became even clearer to me as you were describing them. I absolutely agree with all of them. I still like the episode. And the thing now, having watched it in context with the way that we're doing the podcast is I go, you know what? We talked about Naked Time and Galileo 7 and This Side of Paradise is these these key moments in the evolution of the character of, of Spock. And I think this is another one. And part of me wonders is like, is this the seeds? Because Spock ceases to be Commander Spock. He's going to become Ambassador Spock. And he is the guy that unifies the Romulan Empire with the Vulcans. And I suddenly went, 
maybe the events of this episode, both in terms of finding ways to negotiate between the human half and the Vulcan half, but then also finding ways, having a deep connection to the Romulan half because he fell in love with the Romulan. And that maybe that is what's in his head over the next 80 years that leads him to become the person he's going to become as Ambassador Spock. Yeah, yeah. So you think you're saying, Steve, that the seeds of the Spock yes. that we would see, you know, especially by the time we get to next generation in unification were planted in the Enterprise incident. That is what I'm saying. Yeah, That is an excellent point. And I am going to absolutely go with that because I think that is an excellent, excellent point. Uh, I, I've always really liked this episode a lot in the context of these first four episodes of season three. Uh, they, they, they were really, really on a roll. And uh, I think that I do think that the Enterprise incident is one of the best episodes of season three. And because it was written by Fontana, you know, she really had the magic touch when it came to writing about Vulcans, writing about Spock. And I think that in hindsight, looking back on on some of the great Spock episodes, they were really the episodes in where where you get to see a rare moment where Spock is sort of lured into a romance. I mean, look at this side of paradise. Look at this episode and look at all our yesterdays. These are some of the very finest episodes of, of the series, especially such great Spock episodes. And I think that Shatner's, uh, Shatner's chemistry with, uh, certainly with, with Nimoy is, is fantastic. And I think Nimoy's chemistry with Linville is great. Uh, and this is a, a superb episode of season three and, uh, things are about to change very, very quickly. <laughs> and listen, Adam, uh, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Uh, I have to say that that this could be my very favorite conversation that I've had yet uh, on this podcast. And then just thank you so much for your time, for your knowledge, for for just your your honesty and 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 sharing stories about about growing up with your father. And just for everyone listening, if you haven't already seen Adam's documentary about the impact of, of his, of his, the legacy of his father and his relationship with his father. I strongly urge you to watch for the love of Spock, which he wrote and directed. I know it's streaming on uh, Netflix, but you can also get the Blu-ray where you can hear the director's commentary moderated by this guy. <laughs> oh, that's great. I have now I have to watch that. I do want to say I've watched I, pretty much I think all the documentaries on Star Trek and many of them are not that great. And for the love of Spock really is and having made documentaries myself, I know that you probably started with a whole ton of footage and figuring out how to navigate through, find a structure and a story, that is not easy. And you did a really fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been an honor to be with you today and a lot of fun to go through it scene by scene, line by line. And I hope we get the opportunity to do it again. I would love that. I would love that. We're going to take you up on that for sure. In the meantime, Steve, how can people follow and support Enterprise Incidents? Well, you can follow us on all the usual social media places like Facebook, which is where we do the most stuff. But we're also on Twitter. You can follow us at Enter Incidents on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we would love to get your reviews. The reviews are critical. Even if you're going like, oh, the show's been around a while. They probably don't need reviews anymore. Wrong. We could use those reviews. <laughs> yeah. we re they really help people find the show. If you're on YouTube and subscribe there, leave your comments. You can also rate the show on Spotify. And if you want to support the show, you know, Scott and I do this totally out of love, but every once in a while, 
we could use a little bit of money because it's hard <laughs> to make this show. You can go to Anchor. There's a link right in the show notes wherever you get your podcast. Click on it. You can subscribe to the show for as little as 99 cents a month. I don't know what else in the world you can get for 99 cents a month, but it really will help the show. Think of it as a tip jar. And if you all are following me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to listen to my other podcast, well, this was kind of an episode about spies. We've done a bunch of uh, movies on spies on the cinephiles, including Three Days of the Condor, Hunt for Red October, and Glorious Bastards is kind of about spies. This is also kind of a caper movie because we're going to steal something. Well, we just finished doing Oceans of Ele- Oceans Eleven. If you really want to deal with someone going undercover in a scarier way, one of our first movies we ever did on the cinephiles was Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. All of those kind of relate to the Enterprise incident. How, well, Scott, how would people find you on social media? I'm just trying to tie Reservoir Dogs to the Enterprise incident. That would have been a hell of an episode. Uh, <laughs> Tarantino directing the Enterprise incident. Uh, you he wanted to me. do Star Trek. We know he wanted to yeah. do a, a Star Trek movie. And, and by the way, Adam, where can people follow you on social media? I am on Twitter at Adam underscore Nimoy. And uh, I'd love to have people following me. I'm posting every so often Star Trek and Uh, other interests that I have. And thank you for asking. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And I do want to second what Steve said about supporting us uh, by going to Anchor. This truly is a labor of love, but we we spend a a whole lot of time doing it and we love doing it. So any support you could give us on the Anchor link would be most appreciated. And again, follow us on Facebook, on the Enterprise Incidents Facebook page. We love engaging with you on our Facebook page. And definitely, definitely, even if you think we don't need it, we do need those reviews on the Apple Podcasts. That brings us to the end of the Enterprise Incident on Enterprise Incidents. On the next voyage of Enterprise Incidents, it's the moment Steve and I have been dreading. From the first moment we started doing the Enterprise Incident, we said, what's going to happen when we get to season three? And I thought to myself, well, there's going to be one episode that's going to be a real challenge. And that time has come. And sad to say that Star Trek never really, truly recovered After this next episode, even though there were some gems to come, this is the beginning of the Nadir for Star Trek. It is. And the Children Shall Lead is our next voyage on Enterprise Incidents. So hail, hail, fire and snow and keep going boldly.